When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, my friends, and welcome back to Unshaken. I'm Jared Halverson, and quick update. If last week's lesson was a little late, if this week's lesson is a little late, and if the next couple of weeks are a little late, uh, please forgive me. It's an, a crazy time of year. I'm just trying to keep my snorkel tip above water, and I'm stretching it as far as, far as I can. Uh, the semester is ending, and there's firesides and travel plans, and I just got back from, from four days up in the Pacific Northwest picking up my son from his service mission in Portland. And it was absolutely amazing to spend that time with him. I was telling my dad, I, I, I would have loved to have three and a half days just to, to have dad to myself when I was a kid. Uh, and to have that time with my son was, was amazing. To see the changes in him. To all of you who served with him in Portland, or especially you wonderful souls that served in the, in the Portland, uh, Oregon temple. Uh, my son did all kinds of different acts of service, whether it was addiction recovery or homeless populations or the Salvation Army or the Bishop's Storehouse, but a lot of the time at the temple as well serving. And he, he came home with an incredible love of the temple as well as those who served there. So there's talk about spiritual taste buds being well developed. And you who serve in the temple know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, I, I'm just amazed at what the Lord can make of us when we give him free reign. And to see what my son, he's always been a good kid, but to see what he's become as he's given his life over to the Lord, as he has immersed himself in Scripture in ways he never had before, that has been life-changing for him. And just to, to sense his growth and his maturity, it's, that's, what, that's what discipleship's all about. That's why we come unto Christ. He changes us. And I'm a witness of that in, in seeing my son these last few days. Now, this week, we have some incredible things to study. We've got a lot. We, last week, we were, almost, we were entirely in the book of John. Uh, prior to that, we spent most of our time in Matthew. Uh, we're going to be back to Matthew soon and kind of following his chronology through the end uh, for the most part. But today, we are going to be in the book of Luke almost entirely. We'll end today with John chapter 11, which is an absolute masterpiece. It is the raising of Lazarus. So I hope you endure to the end so that Lazarus can come back. You don't want to leave him in the tomb. But before we get to John 11, we have Luke chapter 12 through 17. Now, that's a lot of material. And it's amazing. I, I love this middle section of Luke. There are stories here, parables that Jesus taught that are only found in the book of Luke. Some of his more famous ones, the three parables of the lost, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, also known as the prodigal. Uh, we will see... Here's the, here's the interesting thing, too. We will see some, some parables that are only in Luke, but rather than extol virtues, they are condemning vices. We will meet some interesting villains today in some of the parables Jesus teaches and in some of the conversations he has with, with scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, some, some uh, living villains that he, that he encountered. But I remember when I taught these, these stories in, in seminary, I'd often start by asking the students about their favorite Disney villains and things that they learned from them, even in a positive way. 
at least they were resourceful, or at least they were determined, <laughs> or, or whatever it might be. But to, to brainstorm these, these, it's amazing what a villain can, how it moves a story along. And by Jesus oh, highlighting some of these, these villains in the parable of the, the rich man, the rich fool, for example, or the rich man and Lazarus, or the parable of the unjust steward, which is a really weird one. That, that one you kind of have to think, can an, e- an evil person teach you a good lesson? Well, the Lord makes sure that he does. So we've got some amazing things ahead. Luke, as we know, was so focused on Christ's inclusivity that there are more women mentioned in the book of Luke, that, uh, that there are more marginalized and, and lowly and these role reversals and bringing the low up. That's, that's the book of Luke for you. And we, we see that. But in these middle chapters, we see that the Lord's inclusivity does not extend to iniquity. That he is still hard sayings who can hear them. He is still decrying sin and condemning iniquity and inviting us to repent, to become more like him. So keep your eye out for all of that as we, as we dive in to the book of Luke. We're going to be skipping a few things today, by the way. Chapter 13, we already studied, so we're not going to do chapter 13. And there are some things in chapter 12, as well as chapter 17, that have more to do with the second coming. And Matthew nails that topic in chapter 24 and 25. And so we're going to save these things from Luke to put them into that conversation. Now, a lot of it's the same kind of things, just Luke's version. And other Luke 12 has some, some things that aren't in Matthew. But t- uh, thematically, topically, I think they'll fit better then. And we'll be able to really focus on the second coming. Okay, So, so we'll skip a, a little bit of, uh, of what we have in the chapters today. But we won't skip them permanently. We'll come back. Now, let's dive in. Luke chapter 12. Uh, By this time, Luke chapter 11 has just ended with Jesus rebuking the scribes and the Pharisees. Uh, He was was rebuking them for their hypocrisy, which was a common sin among them, but also for their legalism, which is interesting, uh, of of straining out gnats and swallowing camels. We're going to see that really clearly uh, denounced in Matthew chapter 23. So, So hold on to some of that. The chapter ends with this, though. Verse 53 and 54 of Luke 11. And as he said these things unto them, the scribes and Pharisees began to urge him vehemently and to provoke him to speak of many things, laying wait for him and seeking to catch something out of his mouth that they might accuse him. Sounds a lot like uh, uh, King Noah and the wicked priests with Abinadi. What, What can we get him to say that will trip him up? In some ways, this reminds me of those, those whack-a-mole Pharisees that were lying wait in the grain fields. And as soon as they saw the apostles you know, harvesting, quote-unquote, on the Sabbath, they pop up, ah, gotcha. And, and the same thing is happening here verbally. They are laying wait for Jesus, trying to catch something out of his mouth. Now, I do hope that we are willing to wait on the Lord. And I hope that we are eager to catch something out of his mouth, but not to make him an offender for a word, rather to allow him to truly teach us. I hope that we are urging the Spirit vehemently, albeit humbly and patiently and submissively, to please teach us. As we begin these chapters today, there is deep insight in the, in the material that the Lord gives us. And if we will have the faith to 
to wait on the Spirit's promptings, I promise there will be incredible words of wisdom for us to catch. So may we catch all we can. That's the end of 11. Chapter 12 then begins, verse 1 and 2. In the meantime, so right on the heels of this, of rebuking the scribes and Pharisees and, and them trying to make him an offender for a word. In the meantime, when there were gathered together an innumerable multitude of people, Now, we're used to that, right? Crowds, as far as the eye can see, multiplying loaves and fishes to feed thousands upon thousands. But there's a phrase here in Luke we've never seen before, which suggests that crowd control is is even harder to come by. These innumerable multitudes of people, insomuch that they trod one upon another. Can you picture that? I mean, talk about a, a mental image that they're just, there's no room for anybody. There's not even the possibility of tearing off roof tiles and lowering people down. People are walking all over one another, trying to get to Jesus. Now, in the midst of that, he began to say unto his disciples, first of all, Beware ye of the leaven of the Pharisees. Now, we saw that before, and we talked about it in terms of epistemology. That are the Pharisees sprinkling in some kind of... Oh, restricted empiricism, that I need science, I need absolute proof. That is one form of Pharisaic leaven, but he explains this one in different terms. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. For there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, neither hid that shall not be known. Oh, to bake a little hypocrisy into your bread? not knowing that God will someday expose every ingredient? Oh, to turn around the box and see the list and the caloric intake, or in this case, the amount of hypocrisy that sometimes goes into to people's so-called righteousness is holier than thou, and I'm guarding the law. Well, are you? Or are you looking for legal loopholes to, or ways to appear to be more righteous than you really are? That kind of leaven, oh, it does make the bread rise in people's estimation. Look how high and mighty these scribes and Pharisees are. And yet that yeast, that leaven, also leads that, or makes that bread decay. To see a sense of, oh, moldy spirituality, that it's the, it's the flash in the pan, it's the, it's the plant on the stony ground that springs up, but then quickly withers. This bread does rise, but it does mold as well. So yes, beware of the hypocrisy in the leaven of the Pharisees. In verse 3 through 5, Therefore, whatsoever ye have spoken in darkness shall be heard in the light. He's building on what he just said. Anything covered, which is what a a hypocrite wants to do, cover the real real self, right? Uh, A hypocrite is someone that wears a mask. They don't want you to see the real face behind it. He just said in verse 2, it's going to be revealed. You can't hide it. It's going to be known. And verse 3, he's building on it. You think it's in the dark. Oh, no. The light of the world is going to shine that spotlight upon the things that you want to keep hidden. Whatsoever you've spoken in darkness, it shall be heard in the light. That which you have spoken in the ear, in closets. I love the description here. It's like you're whispering and you're behind closed doors, stuck in a closet somewhere, not wanting, no one's going to know this. Oh, be careful. That shall be proclaimed upon the housetops. The Doctrine and Covenants in the very first revelation, the preface of the Doctrine and Covenants gives similar warnings 
that you, you think the world will not know. Well, there is a God above with an all-seeing eye that is aware of everything. Hypocrisy does not work with him. So the Lord says, I say unto you, my friends. And I love that he calls us that and them that. These are his friends he's trying to help. Be not afraid of them that kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will forewarn you of whom ye shall fear. Fear him which after he hath killed hath power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. There are two deaths to be aware of, physical and spiritual. But there's only one to fear, and that's spiritual death, separation from God. Be aware, my friends, of who the real enemies are. And though those scribes and Pharisees hypocritically make themselves to look like friends of God and friends of the law, no, they're the type whose example, if you follow, will bring you down, cast into hell, spiritual death, separation from God. Yes, fear them. I love, by the way, that Jesus, who, as we're seeing, everything post-transfiguration, he is focused on getting back to Jerusalem for his rendezvous with redemption. That there is a garden and a cross ahead, and he knows it. And yet, as he's hinting at to his friends, his disciples, no fear. And Jesus did not fear his death. He had faith to move forward. Now, from verse 6 through 12, Jesus then gives similar instructions to these crowds of disciples as what he did to, said to the apostles in Matthew chapter 10. Uh, he is trying to remind them that the hairs of their head are numbered, that he'll watch over them and provide for them in everything that they need. He warns them about denying the Holy Ghost as the ultimate sin. And then he moves on and talks about not taking thought for providing for themselves because he's got this, this covered. Okay? Yeah, so we've talked about that in the Matthew version of all of that, and so we'll skip it. But there is one, there is one JST of this part that's really important. It's not found in the Matthew 10 version of these instructions, so we'll see it here. This is Luke chapter 12, verse 9 through 12, the JST. But he who denieth me before men shall be denied before the angels of God. This is in the section where he's talking about denying the Holy Ghost and comparing that to those that deny him as the Son of God. Now, so far, so good. But then notice the inspired addition. Now, his disciples knew that he said this because they had spoken evil against him before the people, for they were afraid to confess him before men. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, Ah, he knoweth our hearts. <laughs> Talk about the light shining past the darkness of hypocrisy. He knows exactly what they've been saying, what they've been thinking, what they've been afraid to confess. They thought it was behind closed doors, kind of whispering behind his back. But no, he knows. He knoweth our hearts. They realize it. And he speaketh to our condemnation, and we shall not be forgiven. Oh, no, Jesus is aware that we've been afraid to stand up for him. We've been afraid of the secular synagogue, as we talked about with the parents of that man born blind. We, we care more about what man thinks than what God thinks, and there's no forgiveness there. And yet the Lord goes on. He answered them and said unto them, Whosoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man, and then this JST edition, and repenteth, it shall be forgiven him. But unto him who blasphemeth against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him. I'm grateful for that inspired addition. In the Luke original, as we have in the King James, it simply 
Don't deny the Holy Ghost. It's even worse than denying Christ. Here, the Lord again offers his forgiveness for the lesser of the two sins. But to see it in context of the disciples' doubt, I think is interesting. As he talks about fear and not fearing what man can do, we then see an example of people who did what they shouldn't have because they feared what man could do. It's interesting how we might I'll be tempted to betray the Savior in our own way. Not with a kiss, as Judas will, but hoping to get a kiss from the wicked world, the kiss of praise, when too often following the inconvenient Messiah seems to be something that the world will not respect us for. Well, who cares about the world's respect? The world has nothing to offer. And so, don't fear what they'll think of you. Come unto Christ and be willing and brave enough to bear witness of him, whatever the circumstance. Uh, I remember uh, meeting oh, Bob Matthews, uh, Robert J. Matthews, former dean of the BYU Religion Department, uh, the world's expert on the JST. And I remember him saying once that one of the great differences in the JST is that compared to what we have in the King James or other modern translations, the JST presents a picture of the disciples. They, they look worse in the JST. Je Jesus looks better and his followers look worse in the inspired version. Oh, that, <laughs> I think in some ways it points to the reality of, of who we are compared to who Jesus is. And to be awakened to these kinds of stark realities Am I afraid sometimes to confess who I really am and who I really follow simply because I'm, I'm too concerned with what the world will think? We must not speak evil against Jesus before the people. Thank you, Joseph, for that addition. Now back to the King James, verse 13. One of the company said unto him, Master, speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. You picture this man, my brother won't listen to me, but maybe he'll listen to you, okay? Well, Jesus says unto him, man, who made me a judge or a divider over you? And the Greek there means an apportioner or an arbitrator, someone to come between to kind of solve the issues and settle the disputes, uh, an apportioner, like an accountant, uh, or a judge to decide who gets what in the divorce proceedings. And yet I love the Lord's pushback, like that's not why I came. I mean, think about it. If I didn't come as a military messiah, which is what everybody wants, then I certainly didn't come as some kind of, oh, Judge Judy to, to settle claims in some secular small claims court. Uh, that's not what I'm here. I'm here to talk about celestial inheritances, not earthly ones. So Jesus said unto them, take heed and beware of covetousness. That seems to be what's driving this brother. Actually, both brothers. And as Jesus concludes, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. In short, it's just stuff. And who cares about stuff? I am not concerned about earthly inheritances. We have heavenly mansions to build. Let's focus on that, shall we? In some ways, this reminds me of the third temptation from Satan. And third, the third time was the charm, at least he was hoping. Unfortunately for his sake, it was third strike and he was out. 
But if he thought, if he worried that the first and second temptations would fail, then the third one must have been oh, the one he figured would prevail no matter what. And which, which one was it? Worship me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. This world anyway. And Jesus, less concerned about an inheritance on this side of the veil, thought, uh, no, no thanks, not interested. I, I have patience to receive my celestial reward. That's the key for investments, right? If you want your investment to make, make a difference, you have to be patient. You have to wait. Cashing out early is the worst thing you can do. And that's what Satan was trying to get Jesus to do. That's what, you know, in a way, these, the people he's warning, that's the sin that they seem to be falling prey to. Especially these brothers, and I would say both of them. Uh, is the, I'm assuming that it's the older brother that won't share with the younger brother. Okay, that's often the case. And if it's the older brother that is, has the birthright, for example, and doesn't want to divide it up, doesn't want to use any of his double portion to help other people, or maybe it's this younger brother saying, it's just not fair that he have twice as much as I am. I just, Lord, will you settle things for us? And he's not interested in that. He's trying to help us all overcome our covetousness. Whether it's coveting things we don't have or coveting things we do. There's that great line. I think it's, is it section 19? Like it's been too long and, I, and, I, and I, it just popped in my head. But it's to Martin Harris. And one of the things the Lord says to Martin is, quit coveting your own property. And I love that because you can picture Martin Harris going, wait, wait, isn't coveting but wanting something that doesn't belong to you? How can I covet my own property? It's mine. Oh, wait, unless you're hinting that it doesn't really belong to me? Oh, yeah, okay. Um, it belongs to you, and I'm a steward rather than an owner, and you want me to do some things with your money that you've put in my hands temporarily? Ah, uh, gotcha. It, it is interesting to have this covetousness of your own possessions. And the Lord is warning everybody against covetousness. You younger brother, you want what doesn't belong to you. Older brother, you want what you think belongs to you. You want to keep it yourself. And that's something you're going to need to overcome as well. Fascinating what's happening here. In a way, it reminds me of President Benson's words on pride, that there's pride from above and pride from below. Pride for the haves and pride for among the have-nots. They're just kind of different approaches to things. And the same can be true of covetousness. Covetousness from above and covetousness from below. Either way, they're both wrong. And like I said, it's just stuff. Anyway, in the 117th section of the Doctrine and Covenants, the Lord is basically teaching the same principle. Warning against covetousness, he says it this way. Let them repent of all their sins and of all their covetous desires before me, saith the Lord. And then how's this for putting it into perspective? For what is property unto me, saith the Lord. <laughs> property? Who cares? This little, this, this nothing that you're fighting over. That was DNC 117 verse 4. Skip ahead to verse 8 and he's still talking about it. He says, why would you covet that which is but the drop and neglect the more weighty matters? Things that matter far more than the drop in the bucket you and your brother are arguing over. Let it go, and I will reward thee infinitely. Now, in case that 
Oh, straightforward ex exhortation is insufficient. Well, how about I tell you a story? Because the beautiful thing about stories is we lower our defenses because it's indirect teaching. He's just talking about somebody else, right? And it's actually, it's probably non-didactic. He's not teaching us anything. It's just he's taking a break and telling us a story. Really? Do you not know Jesus? Do you not know what his parables are for? Oh, he's preaching with every one of them. And he is trying to teach lessons and give invitations and exhortations and sometimes condemnations. Uh, but because it's fiction, when your life is a non-fiction story, you're, you think you're safe. So yes, settle in and enjoy story time with Jesus. Lower your defenses and allow a moral of the story to sneak its way into your soul to teach you truth. This one, starting in verse 16, will be the parable of the rich fool. I love this one. And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. So picture the owner of the good ground in the parable of the sower, for example. Uh, even that can go to your head, so be careful, right? Uh, but this is good ground. This is not stony. This is not, this is not among the thorns. This is as good as it gets. And the ground is bringing forth plentifully. This is bumper crop. I also love the fact that this is farming, okay? The ground is bringing forth plentifully. Because farming isn't completely up to you. I mean, you can't force growth, right? So you shouldn't be taking all the credit. Did you cause the, the sun to shine, the rain to fall? No. And since the rain falls on the just and the unjust, and the sun shines on both the wicked and the righteous, don't take this as, as if you were some kind of oh, know-it-all or, or holier than other people or more blessed than those around you. No, that's probably what he's thinking, though, right? If sin is suffering and those that are suffering are probably guilty of sin, then those that are prospering are probably, they probably deserve it. This is like prosperity gospel, as we see in our day, that if things are going well for you, the ground is bringing forth plentifully, ah, then you must be deserving of all of this. God is smiling down upon you. Well, that's how this rich man feels. And so he thought within himself. And here, notice all the focus on self in this parable. Okay? That's almost everywhere. It's first person pronouns. Uh, it, well, it'd be first person for himself. <laughs> he, he is thinking within himself and he says, what shall I do? Here's the first person pronoun. What shall I do? Because I have no room where to bestow my fruits. Now, the Greek word for bestow there is actually store. So I have no place to store everything. I'm running out of storage space. Where am I going to put it all? But I do love that the King James translators used bestow because bestow suggests giving it to someone else. Who will I bestow it upon? This is not about hoarding it all for yourself, but that's what the man intends to do. I don't have, I'm a good problem, right? I only have a two-car garage, but I have so many vehicles. I need more space. And so he said, this will I do. More first-person singular pronouns. I will pull down my barns and build greater. Notice he's dissatisfied with what he already had. And so he's going to tear them down in order to build up greater. He's going to destroy in order to build. If that doesn't sound like corporate America, I don't know what does. I mean, this is like the robber barons back in the 19th century. Those who exploit workers. This is corporate greed. This is what Isaiah called grinding the faces of the poor. 
I'm going to tear you down so I can build myself up. How's that for covetousness? Now, in his case, it's the literal, right? Tear down the barn, build something bigger so I have more storage space. I need a 10-car garage because I'm probably going to keep getting more vehicles. Then he says, and there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. Notice the my, the possessive pronouns. They're mine. Interesting, he calls them goods. And yes, he might have goods, but he isn't good. He calls them fruits. Yes, he has fruits, but, well, by their fruits, we are coming to know him. And then notice what he says. And this is my favorite part of the parable. And I will say to my soul, soul? <laughs> and I just, he's actually doing it. He's, he's talking to himself. And he refers to himself as soul. Okay, soul. I laugh because I'm thinking, does this guy not have anyone else in his life at all? I mean, no wonder it's all these first-person singular pronouns. And, it, and he's even, I mean, he thinks to himself, he's talking to himself, he's going to bestow all of his wealth upon himself. Whew, we're talking about a small package all wrapped up in himself. Talk about owning everything and yet having nothing. The only person he can talk to is his own soul. So he addresses himself. Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Ah, so what's the plan from here? Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Now there's a period after that. That's the end of the thought. And yet if you know this phrase from elsewhere in Scripture, could you add another phrase to the end of it? Eat, drink, and be merry. Fill in the blank. For tomorrow we die? Ah, well, <laughs> spoiler alert. You know what's coming. But pause here for a moment and notice what he's what he's planning. And before we condemn him outright, realize that in a way what he's just described is what we often call the American dream. Because the American dream, isn't it to get ahead? To strike it rich? To make a name for yourself or to progress temporally? Uh, it's freedom to excel, to freedom to prosper. This is the prosperity gospel if I've ever seen it. You get, to, you get ahead, you stockpile your assets, you retire early, and then enjoy spending the money that you've amassed in life. And typically, spend it on yourself. Soul, what do you think? That's a pretty good plan, isn't it? That's exactly what this man is doing. I remember as a kid in, in Young Men's and Young Women's, we had a combined activity once called Bigger and Better. It was a blast. And I've heard other people play it as well, where you, every team starts out with a paperclip or something, something practically worthless. And the name of the game is Bigger and Better because that's what you're seeking. You, it's like a scavenger hunt based on covetousness. <laughs> it's strange. But you go around the neighborhood and say, hey, I'll give you this paperclip if you'll give me something bigger and better. And it's typically just very gradual, the increase, because, well, it's, okay, paperclip, fine. Here's something I wasn't going to use anyway, but this is, a, take this. And then you leave with something bigger and better. But then you go next door and throughout the neighborhood and just incremental increases so that no single family is making some massive sacrifice. But cumulatively, you come back with a haul. I remember one group came back that day with a, like a washing machine. It was in rough shape, but worth more than a paperclip. 
it's amazing what, what can happen with these, it's called the law of creeping averages. And what used to be sufficient no longer is, and so you got to get better. I used, my barn was fine, but now I've got more stuff, so I need a bigger barn. So let's creep up. I love what Joe J. Christensen once said in a conference talk, this little couplet. There, there, little luxury, don't you cry. You'll be a necessity by and by. Oh, there's creeping averages. That's incremental increase before it all goes to your head. But this, it is this hope that someday I'll just be able to take my ease and eat, drink, and be merry. But yes, tomorrow you do die. And in verse 20 and 21, God said unto him, Thou fool. And thus the name of this parable, the rich fool. It's not often that the Lord uses derogatory names like this. This is fictional, okay? But sadly, it's so close to fact. Are we rich? And are, if so, are we rich fools? He says, thou fool. And the Greek here means senseless or mindless or inconsiderate. You're not considering your ways. You're not considering other people. He said, this night thy soul, the one you've been talking with, thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? Oh, bestowed? No, just storing for self. You haven't been providing for others. And then the moral of the story. So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Ah, it's interesting that often the, the wealthy, those that are, that are richer than others often feel that they are smarter than others too. Because look what I was able to do, to amass all this money. Well, it's, it's the rich fool as far as the Lord is concerned. Because it's not about the, the amount. It's about who you're amassing that, that amount for. And if you're just talking to your own soul, and, and you are the, your own object of, of gratification and, and satisfaction. I'm trying to, to bless myself. I'm bestowing it upon me. I'm providing for me. I have treasure for myself, as opposed to being rich toward God. That's a great phrase, rich toward God. This is stewardship rather than ownership. This is recognizing that for us, it's just stuff. And what is property unto the Lord? For him, it's simply a way for him to bless all of his children. That's what the bishop's storehouse is for, right? Bring in the surplus so God can then give it to those who are in greater need. That it is not a matter of how can I stockpile this for myself? Beyond that, notice the phrase at the beginning, this night. Right now, it's not just even tomorrow we die. It's tonight we die. Eat, drink, and be merry. You thought you were laying this up in store for your retirement. You won't live to have one. To be preparing for some future in this life with no thought for your future in the next. Talk about short-sightedness. Talk about foolishness. Notice also the Lord's central question. The question was, who? Whose shall these things be? 
That's what the Lord is thinking about when it comes to wealth. Who can you use it for? Who can you bless? I remember years ago in a seminary class, teaching what I called the parable of the broken hose. It's not as good as the parable of the rich fool, but I tried. And it was amazing to watch my students just run with it. I described a hose. You've got, I said it was the middle of the summer. And in Utah, if the sprinklers aren't on, the grass is going to die. Sure enough, the grass is getting brown out front. And so you're, you're going out. You don't have sprinklers, but you have a hose. And so you turn the hose on, you're going to go water the lawn. Well, unfortunately, you're in your zeal to turn it on, it goes too fast and you break the spigot off, the handle, the handle off the spigot. And the water's just flowing through that hose. Now, assuming that you can't call a plumber and there's no way to, to, to stop this thing, you can't kink the hose, it's gonna just pushing its way through. My question to my students is what, or was, what are you going to do with the water? They kept trying to think of ways to stop the flow. I'm like, no, 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 that's just the premise here. You can't stop the flow of water. It's going to come, like it or not. My only question is, what are you going to do with it? And somebody said, well, water the lawn. I'm like, duh. That's why we turned it on to begin with, okay? So yeah, do what you intended. Water the lawn. There was a purpose behind turning on the hose to begin with. Well, your front yard is now marshland. Uh, What are you going to do next? It's like, well, just turn off the water. Remember, you can't. The only question, how are you going to use it? They said, uh, what are the backyard? I said, Great, good thinking. Now your backyard is the bayou. Uh, what are you going to do next? And there, it was so fun to watch the students like creatively scrambling, like what am I going to do with all this water? Somebody said, uh, well, well, wash your cars. I'm like, awesome, great, okay? You've washed all the cars, everything's perfect. Now what? The water's still flowing and it's, you're, you're paying for it. You got the water bill and so what are you going to do now? Uh, somebody was, uh, well, well, wash the house. I'm like, what? what? Okay, I guess people do that. Uh, Pressure washer, whatever. Okay, the house is now sparkling clean. What are you going to do next? And they kept coming up with new and and, and inventive ways. At one point, they were like, "Uh, dig a swimming pool. I'm like, awesome. You have an Olympic size in the backyard now, and it's overflowing. Uh, What next? They're like, "Uh, water slide? Ooh, I like where you're going with this. This sounds fun. Uh, So now we have a water slide in the back. Okay, good. Now what? Somebody else was, uh, store the water. I'm like, great. You got those big, giant 55-gallon drums, and you're running out of them because the water just continues to flow. One enterprising young man, probably a future business um, uh, leader, uh, said, sell the water. And I'm like, ah, now. Ah, we're actually making a profit. Good. We don't have to pay for the water ourselves. Let's make somebody else do it. And in the midst of this reverie of creativity, one young woman eventually raised her hand timidly and suggested we could water the neighbor's lawn. And I stopped and smiled at her and then addressed the class and asked, How long did it take before we started thinking of somebody else? It's ironic how creative we can get in ways to spend our surplus on ourselves. And as soon as we get a raise, we think about how much more we can spend instead of how much more we can give. And we fight over how much we can amass as opposed to popularity based on philanthropy, for example, and how much can I give? Be aware of the, the broken spigots. As I said to my students, I know money doesn't grow on trees. It comes out of hoses, and it'll just flow throughout your whole life.
sometimes as a trickle, but sometimes as a torrent, and you have to decide what you'll do with it. Is there a level of luxury that is sufficient and beyond? Is there a place where, no, beyond that, that standard of living, I don't ever need to go. Instead, I can help those around me. And that seems to be what the Lord is getting at with his comment about rich toward God. What does God do with the riches of his goodness and the riches of his grace? He opens the windows of heaven and pours out blessings even more than we can receive. <laughs> if it's more than we can receive, please do not tear down the barn that, it, that he's filling just so you have room to amass more. No, look around and see who else you can share it with. I think the closest I ever came to feeling that was on my mission. Near the end, I knew I didn't have much time left and my shoes were absolutely just gone. Uh, I had to be careful about wearing, I had to be careful about walking through puddles and in Puerto Rico, there were lots of them because my socks would get wet through the, the soles of my feet. Well, at one point I made a mistake and I was at a sacrament meeting on Sunday, and I was kneeling down uh, to talk to somebody kind of eye to eye. But unfortunately, by kneeling, it exposed the, bottom of, the bottoms of my shoes and the socks that were poking through them. By the end of church that day, the Relief Society president came to me with a wad of cash and gave it to me and handed it up, kind of put it in my hand and said, go buy yourself shoes, elder. And I'm like, no, 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 you don't, I, I'm not, I am not, it's okay, these will last. And she's like, no, you need shoes. Uh, go buy yourself a pair. And I thought to myself, and I said to her, I, I'm not taking the money from you incredible saints. Inside I was thinking, I can come up with money easier from family back home than to, to take the money of people I was just trying to give my heart and soul to. Well, they were doing the same to me. When I said, no, take, keep it, give, give it back. And she just smiled and said, I, don't, I didn't keep receipts. I don't know who it all belongs to. And as I looked at the wad, it was mostly ones and fives. Small donations from people that didn't have much to give. But widows mites, everyone. Humbly, I accepted her gift. But when I went to the shoe store and realized, this could probably get me better shoes than I, than I would ever need knowing of another missionary in the district that had shoes just about as bad as mine. We bought two pair, one for me and one for him, all because of the generosity of people that had overcome covetousness and were rich toward God instead. We can do a lot better with that. Now, moving forward in verse 22, uh, all the way through verse 34, Jesus then repeats much of what he taught at the Sermon on the Mount at least from Matthew chapter 6. All those take no thought phrases, right? Remember, uh, Martha was, was careful, and careful and troubled about many things. She was over-anxious. And the term there was the same one Jesus used about don't be so over-anxious about providing for yourself. That was all in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. And, and the birds I will feed, and the flowers I will clothe, and I've got you covered. Just seek first the kingdom of God, and everything else will come. That's no, no wonder you don't need bigger barns, okay? God will keep providing. But there are a few 
additions or alterations in the Luke version of this. So let me, let me bring those out. For example, in the Matthew account, it spoke of, behold the fowls of the air. Okay, just generic birds out there. But in the Luke version, this is verse 24, he says, Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which neither have storehouse nor barn, looking at you, rich fool, and yet God feedeth them. How much more are ye better than the fowls? Now notice the detail. It's not just any type of fowl. This is a raven. And that to me is interesting because ravens are, are unclean animals among the Jews, unclean birds. But why unclean? Because they're scavengers. And I do wonder if that's a subtle hint. Oh, at some of those prosperity gospel coveters that are trying to amass things for themselves. Are you feeding upon the dead? Is your stuff that you're amassing simply lifeless? Are you, are you grave robbers, but robbing from people that aren't already in the grave? You're just sending them there early. I, I wonder about that thought. In some ways, is worldly wealth just carrion that you cannot carry on with you? In verse 29, he says, Seek not ye what ye shall eat, or what ye shall drink. And we saw that same concept in Matthew, but then this addition in Luke. Neither be ye of doubtful mind. I love that. Uh, doubtful. And, and notice he's not saying... I'll put it this way. We have a, an interesting relationship with the word doubt. And we struggle because sometimes when we condemn doubt, it feels like we're telling people, don't ask questions. And that's not the case. Questions are welcome. But doubt, as described here and throughout Scripture, is an attitude. It's an approach to things. You can have questions, but approach them in faith. And you'll get an answer. You trust that the Lord will provide you one in His time and His way. But to approach questions with doubt, there's a skepticism that borders on cynicism that he's not going to answer because there's no one to answer and there's no answer to come. Oh, be careful about that because now doubt doesn't describe this question you have. That's fine. Doubt describes the approach you're using in asking those questions. Doubt describe, describes your attitude. It's your mind now that is doubtful, full of doubt. Think about that. Especially in the context of covetousness, I wonder if that's what makes it hard to just put it in God's hands and know that he'll continue to provide. Uh, I mean, after all, we do... And I'm not saying that you, you empty your, your savings account to give to everyone around you. Uh, King Benjamin warns about that in, in Mosiah chapter 4, right? Uh, as you... As you as you see those that need all around you, give to them, but do not run faster than you have strength, even in your desire to lift those around you. There's a contrary here, okay? There's a Goldilocks zone, a balance that we have of providing for ourselves, including for the rainy day, but also not being so concerned that the rain's never going to stop and I need to have an endless supply here. We need to balance that with our care for the poor. And what sometimes keeps us from doing that is a doubtful mind that worries that God is going to stop providing for us. Well, neither be of doubtful mind. In some ways, this is the difference between a 
scarcity mindset, that there's not much out there, and so I have to hoard and amass what I've got, versus an abundance mindset that the Lord will continue to provide. Those windows of heaven are open, and as long as I trust in him and I'm not of a doubtful mind, he won't shut them. So I can afford to give to you. He'll continue to give to me. In fact, maybe he'll even increase that because he knows I can now be trusted with it to make sure the water from that hose gets to the end of every row. If I can give one awkward personal experience as an illustration of this, when I was in Jerusalem as a student studying abroad, this was in college, I had been home for my mission only briefly, and I was in, in rather good shape, all things considered. But when I got into Jerusalem, I started putting on weight. And by the time I was done, I was almost unrecognizable to myself, at least the the in-shape version of myself. And as I thought about it, why did I overeat in Jerusalem? Now, you're going to laugh at me for this, but it was a scarcity mindset on my part. It was this concern. A, I didn't have my own refrigerator, which means I did not own my own food. Uh, We had a cafeteria, and it was three meals a day, and it was great food, and there was plenty of it. But I don't know if there was some lingering fear, like I'm in Jerusalem and there's bombings occasionally and there's, there were days that we had to be kind of in lockdown in the center. It can be a dangerous place. And my fear was, well, what if we get cut off from things and any meal could end up being my last. I have no food stockpiled. I have no year's, 72 hour kit, let alone a year supply. I don't even have a little mini fridge in my, in my dorm room. And so I better eat. I, this meal, I better tank up. Because I'm going to be out in the old city exploring and on a field trip. And who knows if I have to hunker down and shelter in place or some, something wrong happens. And if this is my last meal, uh, it better be a good one. Well, you eat every meal as if it were your last. And yeah, you are coveting your calories. Oh, you rich fool. And, um, and my barn, as in my belly, was not big enough. So guess what? It did start to expand. Okay, I tore down the old and added new. And there was plenty of room to keep consuming. It was hilarious, actually, that as soon as Jerusalem was over, and we're not talking like, you know, morbidly obese, but it's just uncomfortable for what I was used to. And it was funny to come back home and have my own fridge again and be in the safety of... Of, of Provo, Utah at BYU. And I started exercising more and eating less and just got back to my normal in-shape weight. But people who, and all my friends were like, oh yeah, this is normal Jared. When I, when I first got home, they're like, ooh, put on a little weight there, buddy. Like, ah, sorry, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll work it off. But my Jerusalem friends that were only used to the fatter version of myself, after a year or something, I'd see them at little reunions and stuff uh, or on campus and they're like, are you okay, Jared? Are, do you have like a tapeworm or something? I mean, you're wasting away. And I just laugh like, no, this is the normal me. You saw the overweight version. Because of that scarcity mindset. In a way, to borrow the Lord's language here, I was of a doubtful mind that I would be able to provide for myself or that God would provide for me. And as a result, I began to amass things that were not healthy. I hope that makes sense. And we understand what we're really getting at here. The Lord then says in verse 30, same theme here, 
For all these things, all this stuff we could say, those drops in the bucket, uh, property, what is that to me? Who cares about it? All these things do the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knoweth that ye have need of these things. It's the world that cares about worldly stuff. Don't be worldly. Don't be like that. Overcome covetousness. Don't play that game. Because as he says in verse 32, he's going to be with us. Fear not, little flock. How's that for reassurance from the good shepherd? For it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And what a gift. Heavenly Father is not a hoarder either. He's a giver. And he loves to give. It's his good pleasure to give. We simply have to be trusted with what we receive. Become givers like him as well. And so, what does he say in conclusion? Verse 33 and 34. Sell that ye have and give alms. This is a, a preview of coming attractions when we meet the rich young ruler. Okay? We've seen a rich fool. Later we'll see a rich young ruler. Later today we're going to see a rich man. And, and he's pretty foolish as well. It's similar counsel to all of them and to all of us. Sell that you have in terms of surplus that you're never going to need. Surplus you're holding on to out of greed or out of covetousness or out of doubtful mind. Okay? Sell that and give alms. Liquidate some of those assets so they're actually shareable. And then how's this for an incredible visual aid? Provide yourselves bags which wax not old. A treasure in the heavens that faileth not, where no thief approacheth, neither rich corrupteth. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Ah, bags which wax not old. Do you remember when we talked about Haggai, last year in the Old Testament, and that verse about bags that had holes in them, that you earn wages to put it into a bag with holes, that you're trick-or-treating and there's holes at the bottom of your pillowcase, and all the candy is a trail behind you for someone else to pick up. How, in a similar way, these are bags which wax old. They start to fray in the corners. They get a little threadbare, and you can't hold on to what's inside. The moths, the moths come in. The rust <laughs> begins to break through. The thieves come in and steal. Those are all worldly bags, and they wax old. We have to be more wise than that, less foolish. Like I said, the rich young ruler will be the non-fiction version of this. This is just the fictional one, but sadly, it becomes non-fiction for far too many of us. So may we sew up our bag. Thank you, Haggai. May we replace the old one for a new one, one that will actually hold, but it must be made of material <laughs> that doesn't come from this side of the veil. This is heavenly treasures. The ultimate safety deposit box. Forget your earthly barns. Store your, your riches in heaven. And then the rest of Luke chapter 12 shifts gears and starts talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ. How's that to put all of this in context? The end is near. The, the, the time to pay the piper. The time 
oh, when, when things will come due. The rich man died that night. Well, you might not die, but will the Savior come? There's, you understand the, the urgency with which he's teaching these lessons about materialism and worldliness? Well, like I said, we're not going to teach today the rest of Luke chapter 12. We will save that for the day when we talk about the second coming in our study of Matthew 24 and 25. But I love the way it's taught here in, in the Luke 12 version. So come back for that in a, a month or so. We then turn to chapter 13, and then we turn past chapter 13. Because chapter 13 we already studied with Matthew 13 about the parables of the kingdom. Okay, so many of them are repeated here in Luke chapter 13, and we covered the whole chapter then. So on to chapter 14 of Luke, which begins, verse 1, It came to pass, as he went into the house of one of the chief Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath day, that they watched him. And behold, there was a certain man before him which had the dropsy. And dropsy is, it's not people dropping, not dropping over, it's the swelling of the body due to some kind of abnormal fluid retention. It actually made me think about that rich fool. And does, does he have dropsy? Is he, try, is he abnormally retaining things that, he, that are meant to flow? I mean, you kink the hose, at least in the cartoons, the hose starts to swell. How's that for a hose with dropsy? Now, this rich fool, in some ways, has, has temporal dropsy. Well, this man is suffering legitimately from a, a physical version of that. Okay, Makes you wonder, is this some kind of setup? Uh, are they whack-a-moles again ready to pop up from the grain fields? Well, this time it's from somebody's dinner table. I even wonder why did the chief, one of the chief Pharisees want Jesus to come over? Was, he knew it was the Sabbath. He knew Jesus' personality and his tendency to allow compassion to trump the legalism of the Pharisees. So... Is he, in some ways, is this guy a male equivalent of the woman taken in adultery? Uh, not to the same extreme, obviously, but some kind of pawn being planted in hopes of checkmating Jesus. What's he going to do here? I also, I also wonder, why did Jesus come? Uh, well, I'm used to eating with publicans and sinners. And even though this Pharisee is judging me for that, well... He's a, a publican of sorts. He's definitely a sinner himself. So, of course, I will extend myself in his direction in hopes that he'll change. In some ways, what I'm asking with these first two verses is, why is Jesus there? Why is this chief Pharisee want him there? Why is the man with dropsy there? Everyone's taking their seat, so to speak. And you kind of wonder... Why are they in these positions? Why are they sitting in those particular seats? Hold on to that as the story unfolds. Either way, Jesus sees an opportunity to help someone. And although he knows it's the Sabbath, he also knows this is someone in need. Jesus is caught between a rock and a hard place. Okay, Or a rock meaning the tablets of stone as the Pharisees interpret them and a soft place, namely his compassionate heart. Well, which is going to carry the day for him? It's always his heart. And so, despite a Pharisee, a chief Pharisee looking on, ready to pounce in unrighteous judgment, oh, here's a man in need, and I'm going to help him, come what may. Verse 3, Jesus answering, which is ironic because no question has come up, but it is in, on everybody's mind. Okay, they, He knows what everybody's wondering. 
he answering spake unto the lawyers and Pharisees, these experts in the law. And he asked them a question about the law. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? That's a pretty straightforward question, but nobody wants to answer it. He's turning the tables on them and they, they sense it. So they held their peace. They don't want to commit themselves in either direction, but they sure expect Jesus to, right? Now he takes this man with the dropsy and healed him and let him go. I love those last three words. Just, just go. If the Pharisees are using you as some kind of puppet or pawn, then it's time to, to set you free. Cut the strings. You are an agent, not an object. And so if the Pharisees are objectifying you to try to trap me, I see you as an agent. And you can now act for yourself, fully healed from this malady. So go. And then he answered them, the the people that stayed, these scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, saying, which of you shall have an ass or an ox fallen into a pit and will not straightway pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they could not answer him again to those things, or at least they would not answer him again. Maybe a more accurate description or parallel would be this is the male equivalent of the woman that was stooped over. The woman bent down with heavy burdens to the point that she could not rise to her full potential. And if there's ever a day to help us rise spiritually, it's the Sabbath. And so he healed her. And here, the male equivalent of that, doing the same thing. And then (laughs) he's gone, he's been dismissed, but he still stands there symbolically as Exhibit A. How do you treat the Sabbath and what matters most to you? But after putting them to silence, he tells them another story. This one, we don't have a name for it as a parable, like the parable of the musical chairs, I guess we could call it. But he he does refer to it as a parable. Uh, At least Luke does. This is chapter 14, verse 7. Jesus put forth a parable to those that were bidden when he marked how they chose out the chief rooms. Now, is this still in the same context? Is it still in the same place? He's there in the home of one of the chief Pharisees. And he's probably not the only one there. There's probably all kinds of other lesser Pharisees there. But if these Pharisees are hypocrites, if they are trying to rise and climb the corporate ladder... Uh, They want to be seen of men. They want to be seen with the chief. They want to be seen with Jesus because he's always, I mean, multitudes always, I mean, trampling each other to be around him. Uh, But he's watching them sit down. That's why I mentioned that earlier. Where are people sitting in this scene? And Jesus is aware of how they come in and how they choose their seat. This is observant and discerning Jesus as always. Where are they sitting? It, it's, I sometimes joke with my own students, where they sit in class says a lot about them. Are they always on the edge? Well, you're trying to make a getaway, huh? Uh, you're on the front. Oh, you're here to learn. Okay, you're in the back. You, you want a real getaway, like out the door. Or maybe you're always late. <laughs> Guilty is charged for us sometimes at church. But where do you sit? I've even joked that I wonder if Judgment Day is just a matter of big open room And we all come in, and God just lets us sit wherever we want. But then he judges us based on the seating arrangements. Trying to motivate my students to move closer to the front of the room so I can (laughs) 
speak with him more closely. I've sometimes joked that, yeah, if God does it, then he just walks down the aisles. And front row, celestial, second row, terrestrial, third row, telestial, and we got outer darkness, sons of perdition, Satan in the back. Uh, and they laugh, and sometimes they move up a little. But in this case, Jesus is marking where do they sit. And based on what he sees, here's his little parable. Saying unto them, When thou art bidden of any man, or to a wedding, for example, sit not down in the highest room. Now, we would say the best seat in the house. Don't, don't, don't sit in the, in the chair, the, the seat of honor. Okay, Don't do that. And here's why. Lest a more honorable man than thou be bidden of him. And he that bade thee and him come and say to thee, Oh, this is awkward. Give this man place. I mean, he's, he's higher than you on the, the totem pole. And so you're sitting in his seat. You shouldn't have come here. And then what are you left to do? Thou begin with shame to take the lowest room. Notice it's not just the lower room or the lower seat. It's the absolute lowest one. Because after all, this room is, all, is probably chock full with people that are vying for position and are trying to get pole position or the best seat in the house. And since the best was taken, well, let me get the second best and the third and the fourth and fifth and just kind of rank ourselves, but everybody clawing for the top. I mean, the only seat that's left uh, is the lowest of the low. Uh, even lower than where I would have seated you. But that's all that's left. And so I'm, I'm sorry for the, the awkwardness. But will you please move down? It's an interesting warning. Don't be so prideful to think that you're the smartest person in the room or the the best, most athletic in the room, or the richest in the room, or whatever superlative seems to be in fashion in that particular setting. To walk in pridefully and look around going, oh, best seat in the house is obviously for me. No, because if you come in thinking you're the best, then there's only one way to move, and that's down. And it might end up even being further down than what you deserve. That's what pride ends up doing, though. The, those, the, the high will be brought low so that the low can be brought high. That, those are the role reversals that Luke is famous for. So don't come in tooting your own horn or praising yourself. If there's praise to be done, let someone else do it, which is what the Lord then says next. Verse 10, when thou art bidden, go and sit down in the lowest room. Take, the, take the, that seat that nobody else wants. Take it yourself. And here's why, that when he that bade thee cometh, he may say unto thee, friend, go up higher. Notice this, the host sees you as a friend in this circumstance. There was no such title in the previous, in the previous example. But this friend, he's moving you up higher because he sees you better than you even see yourself. He goes on, then shalt thou have worship in the presence of them that sit at meat with thee. And the moral of the story for whosoever exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. There's the role reversal we've come to expect. I love the thought of letting someone else move you higher because you entered humbly, as opposed to entering pridefully and the only way to move is down. I can't remember which, I think it was Heber J. Grant as a very young apostle, Though I can't remember for sure, so forgive me. Uh, 
but this just popped into my head too. The, he was going to speak and he was overwhelmed and, and felt uh, inadequate for it all. I mean, very young when he was called. And maybe it was even when he was called to be state president, which was even younger. I can't remember the details. But what I do remember about this story is he came up so, he was so humble and the Lord lifted him. He took the stand not knowing what to say and the Lord opened his, he opened his mouth and the Lord filled it. And it filled his soul, but unfortunately it kind of filled his head too. And, and late, it's like, wow, I guess I'm better at this than I thought. What was I thinking? There, to be, there was no cause for a sense of inadequacy. Look how adequate, I, in fact, better than adequate. I was pretty amazing up there. Well, the next time he went to speak, <laughs> he took the stand with all the confidence in the world. He took no thought beforehand because he knew that God was going to fill his mouth when he opened it. Well, it, he did, but he filled it with his foot because he opened his mouth and really had nothing to say and was kind of just dying on the vine up in front of the congregation with nothing good to share and just feeling like an idiot eventually just ended his talk, if we could even call it that, and then sat down, tail between his legs. And a senior member there, someone in higher authority, a higher seat, leaned over and whispered to him, if you'd gone up the way you came down, you would have come down the way you went up. Think about that. You went up feeling good about yourself, but in a prideful way, and therefore ended up coming down feeling humble, or in your case, humiliated. Well, flip it. If you would have gone up humble, you would have come down with confidence because the Lord knows he can trust you with his help. It's not going to go to your head. That's another place where we can, or at least I, can make a lot of improvement. I love that the Lord is trying to help us with all of these parables. Okay? Even though he's depicting villains here, we can be better than they. He then says in verse 12 through 14, Then said he also to him that bade him, When thou makest a dinner or a supper, call not thy friends, nor thy brethren, nor thy kinsmen, nor thy rich neighbors, lest they also bid thee again, and a recompense be made thee. And Jesus had probably just perfectly described the setting. Chief among the Pharisees, with probably a lot of sub-chiefs there with him. And their presence makes him look good, and them being invited make them look good. And hey, I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. This reminds me of these kind of political dinners, and everybody's there to kind of be seen and be seen, or to see and be seen, and... And if I kind of cozy up to the boss, then he'll probably put me in a position of authority. And, and then if I kind of tit for tat, if, if I do something for them, then they'll owe me. And then they'll do something for me. And Jesus is warning about that. They're going to pay you back. Is that why you're doing this for them in the first place? Flip it around, and this is what he's asking for. But when thou makest a feast, call the poor the maimed, the lame, the blind. He could have said, the kind of people that I surround myself with. Call the people that can't do anything in return. He says, thou shalt be blessed, for they cannot recompense thee. Instead, thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. How's that for payback? 
Uh, inviting people that can't pay me back with earthly treasures. Then God will reward me with his riches on high. You remember what Jesus says at the end of Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount? That if you only love those that love you, what reward have you? I mean, even the publicans can do that. And there's the public, the ex-publican Matthew writing it down sheepishly. Uh, back then, I told you about what I call parental publicanism, of being patient with children that ne never try your patience. We're guilty of this sometimes. Do we throw parties for people that we know will return the favor and throw a party and invite us? Or do we give with no thought of reward? Do we give, in fact, to people who cannot pay us back? Because that's what Jesus does. He does not ask us to pay him back. He knows we can't. And so he simply invites us to his feast. Because how else are we going to be able to, <laughs> to eat fruit like the fruit of the tree of life that he has to, has to offer? Where else would we experience this kind of joy? We don't deserve it. He simply invites us to come and partake. No wonder he then teaches the parable of the Great Supper, which is such an incredible parable that we're not going to talk about here. It's the Luke version of what Matthew's account calls the parable of the marriage of the king's son. Those two parables are, there's a few differences, but the main uh, moral of the story is identical either way. And so we're going to save this uh, and talk about it when we get to Matthew chapter 22. Okay, So for here, we're just going to stick with this idea of are you doing things for others just in hopes that they'll do something back? There's actually a great proverb, Proverbs 19, verse 6. Many reverence the face of the prince, and every man is friend to him that giveth gifts. Ah, guilty as charged sometimes. Careful about who you're inviting to dinner. And with that, he's on to the parable of the Great Supper. Now, jump ahead to verse 25. And we'll pick up the story after that parable, which we'll save for later, uh, is over. And he says in verse 25, And there went great multitudes with him, crowds as always. I don't know if they're trampling each other at this point or not. But he turns and he says unto them, If any man come to me, which is all, what you're all doing, but if you come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple, and whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Who hard sayings? Who can hear them? This is a tall order. You, you have to hate all those people and just leave them in the dust and follow Jesus instead? Now, hate is too strong of a word. Uh, the Greek term can also mean simply to esteem less, to love less. Well, if to love less... Isn't that hatred? Well, maybe. But to esteem less, well, than what? Than other people? I, th I thought we were supposed to be no respecter of persons. Well, yeah, that's on the, the, the mortal level. But you're supposed to respect God more than any other person. You're supposed to follow him, come what may. And like we saw before, if you're talking negatively behind my back because you're afraid of what other people will say, then you, you ended up hating me in favor of those who run the secular synagogues. We've got to flip that. We've got to turn it around. And so 
think less of what other people will think of you and more of what God does. In this case, oh, even to put it bluntly, hate everything else. By the way, there is something here that I find fascinating. It's a very, you could call it a very minor JST, but I think it teaches a major, makes a major point. As he lists all of these things that you will have to sacrifice, you'll have to give up your father and your mother and your wife and your children and your brothers and your sisters. Okay. Did you notice that he seems to have a particular gender in mind? It's not obvious when he speaks of father and mother and children and siblings, but he talks about giving up your wife. Ah, so we're talking about, we're talking to men here. Well, under inspiration, Joseph added two words. And in the inspired version, after listing all of these wife and children and brothers and sisters, he adds, or husband, before moving on to, yes, your own life too. I love that. Uh, sisters sacrifice too. And so to all of you sister saints, you can thank Joseph for that inspired addition that there are men that must sacrifice their wives and women that must sacrifice their husbands to put the Lord first above all other things. And again, ideally, we're not having to make those kinds of sacrifices because the other party is not forcing us to choose between. Okay? It's simply a matter of first commandment first and second commandment second. Above all else, loving God with heart, might, mind, and strength. In context of that obedience and righteousness, we then love our neighbor as ourselves. Whether that neighbor is male or female. Whether we are male or female ourselves. There's one other JST here that adds an additional insight. At the end of the verse where it speaks of sacrificing or hating your own life too, the JST then clarifies exactly what the Lord means by that. Or in other words, if you're afraid to lay down your life for my sake. That's, that's really what he's getting at. So it's not even just hating those around you. It's hating yourself. Loving your, yourself less than you love God. Putting him first. He then, we're on a roll with JST. We'll see another one then in verse 28, which puts an exclamation point upon this whole concept. He says, Wherefore, settle this in your hearts, that ye will do the things which I shall teach and command you. I love that phrase. Just settle it. Settle it in your heart. Decide now and stick with it. Decide now when, it's, when your back's not against the wall. When you can be close to the Spirit and decide what your priorities in life will be. Uh, decide how much you're going to water your lawn before you turn the hose to your neighbor. Decide oh, how big a barn is big enough. Decide what matters most in life and what you will put first and foremost. What chair you'll sit in when you're invited into the banquet. All these kinds of things. Decide with the Spirit's help and settle it in your heart. When, when covetousness rears its ugly head again, when pride comes around the corner, hopefully things are already settled. When a temptation to disobey emerges, can you look, stare it down and say, oh, sorry, 
This is your temptation actually isn't very tempting because I've already settled this. It's a done deal for me. As Joseph Smith once said, I made this my rule. When the Lord commands, do it. <laughs> Love that. Do it. That's not Nike. That was Joseph Smith. Okay. He started it. And he made it his rule, his default setting. He settled it in his heart. And he didn't have to revisit it every single time another commandment came. I worry that they call it decision fatigue. And all the choices we have to make all the time. And it just, it's taxing. It takes mental energy to make those kinds of choices. Well, to settle it once and for all when you're strong, boy, will it save you all kinds of decision fatigue later on when it's already settled in your heart. He then gives you a few examples of someone who settled it. Okay, or maybe more accurately, someone who didn't. Verse 28 through 30, For which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first, when things are calm, right? You're not in the middle of the construction project with, with deadlines staring you in the face. No, you sit, you sit down first and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it. Lest haply after he hath laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, oh, This man began to build and was not able to finish. The JST clarifies, And this he said, signifying there should not any man follow him unless he was able to continue, saying, And then he gives another example of this exact same principle. 31 and 32. Or what king going to make war against another king, sitteth not down first in the calm of peace before the war actually begins, and consulteth whether he be able with 10,000 to meet him that cometh against him with 20,000. I mean, I'm, I'm outnumbered. Do you really think we can do this? Do we have the tactical advantages, the lay of the land? I mean, are, are, are we sending our armies into a bloodbath? Now, after this consultation, if you realize that, yeah, I don't like these two-to-one odds, not a good idea, then what are you going to do instead? Jesus explains. Or else, while the other, that enemy king, that's not yet your enemy, okay, while the other is yet a great way off, what are you going to do? He sendeth an ambassage, some kind of ambassadors, and desireth conditions of peace. What I love about both of these examples, whether it's the tower builder or the commander-in-chief, they're both thinking ahead. They're counting the cost. And then based on those costs, they're making a wise decision so that they can then settle that decision in their hearts and move forward accordingly. See, the problem is if I haven't settled things, if I'm just kind of, if I'm not thinking things through, if I'm not counting the cost and consulting with others and coming up with a wise decision beforehand, then in the heat of the moment, I'm probably going to do stupid things. Or I will have oh, too much outlay and not enough income. And, and I put myself in harm's way and I, uh, I tore down a, a barn without any time to rebuild something uh, instead. Oh, I'm a rich fool, or a foolish contractor, or a foolish king. The foolishness seems to be the common denominator. And to have other people come and mock my foolishness, because you, you signed up for something that you were not prepared for. 
you started something and then did not endure to the end. And that is a concern that I see in so many people that are struggling with their ability to endure. And they signed up for a marriage and then didn't stick with it. Or got on the good ship Zion, but then jumped overboard before it reached the millennial port. They didn't count the cost or they didn't settle it in their heart. And so with a doubtful mind, they didn't finish. My prayer is that we don't give up early. On our marriages, on our membership, on our missions, on our lives, whatever it is that the Lord has asked us to do, do it. Count that cost. Settle it in your heart. He then concludes the chapter with this exclamation point, verse 33. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. How's that for hating things that are just stuff? Drops in the bucket. Things that don't matter. Just let it go. Forsake all that is keeping you from me. Because if it ends up keeping you from me, then you are no disciple of mine. The chapter then comes to its official end with a, a statement about salt, which we saw in the Matthew version about being the salt of the earth. And if you, the salt loses its savor, it's, for, it's of no good, no purpose, other than to be trampled down under the foot of man. I guess it can be snow melt, if that's all it's good for. But he has a different lead in here in the Luke version, at least in the Joseph Smith translation of this version. This is JST Luke 14, verse 35 and 36. Then certain of them came to him, saying, Good master, we have Moses and the prophets, and whosoever shall live by them, sh shall he not have life? I mean, you, you're making these, you're making it sound really hard, like if we don't follow you, then we're never going to make it, but we've, we're following Moses, we're, fo we're following the prophets. Isn't that enough to give us life? Well, it depends on how you're following them. You see, Jesus answered, saying, Ye know not Moses, neither the prophets. For if ye had known them, ye would have believed on me. For to this intent they were written. For I am sent that ye might have life. Therefore I will liken it unto salt, which is good. And then he goes on and describes what that good salt is supposed to do, as opposed to the bad salt, the not-so-salty salt. The way he ends it, in verse, in the, back in the King James, if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land, nor yet for the dunghill, but men cast it out. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. So that's even stronger than the Matthew version. It's not even good for snowmelt. It's good for nothing. Not the land, not the dunghill. Just get rid of this stuff. Now, if you got ears to hear, hear it. But yeah, this is a hard saying. Brace yourself. What kind of salt will we be? The kind that truly follows Jesus or the kind that just convinces ourselves that, that we kind of are? I mean, I, I give a token fast offering now and then. I sort of do what the Lord asks of me. Uh, I mean, hating other things, that, that's a little too strong, isn't it? I, I'm interested by the self-justification you see in the JST of these people saying, well, we got Moses and the prophets and we're doing what they ask, so isn't that good enough to live eternally? And Jesus' point, you don't. You say you know Moses. I just hung out with Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration. He doesn't remember you guys at all. 
Okay, because you don't really know him because you don't know me. And Moses pointed to me. This goes back to what we saw when they're ready to stone Jesus for just talking about his connection with Father Abraham. And before Abraham was, I am. Now Moses was preparing for me. I'm Moses 2.0 after all. The prophets all bore witness of me. And I'm here. And you're not accepting that witness. This is a lot like what we saw back in John chapter 5. You search the scriptures. There's Moses and the prophets, right? You search the scriptures because you think that in them you'll find eternal life. Uh-uh. Scriptures are not the ends. They're the means to the greater end. And you're looking at it. Me. So if you study the scriptures, make sure you're finding Jesus there. And make sure that in finding Jesus there, you sign up for full discipleship. No, no half measures. Now with that, we move to chapter 15. And what an incredible chapter this is. He's been, we've been seeing parables about villains so far. And then some real life villains all around Jesus too. Now we're going to see three parables of, oh, of what a villain would never recognize. And that's the worth of a soul that is great in the sight of God. It's the villains that would look down upon those souls as being of lesser worth. The ones that from their high and mighty seat are looking down on those that are sitting in, in, in lesser conditions. And that's the audience to whom he teaches these next three parables. Luke 15, verse 1, 2, 3. Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. They're the type that, are, that feel invited to this wedding feast that we'll study in a couple of weeks. Uh, they're the ones that are always seem to be around Jesus, and yet the ones that are always judged by people like this chief among the Pharisees. Well, the publicans and sinners come, and the Pharisees and scribes murmured, just as you'd expect. This is what they say. This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. Ah. It reminds me of Simon the Pharisee, who is disgusted by this woman of the city. Doesn't he know what type of woman is touching him and washing his feet with her hair? This is disgusting. Uh, she's, remember the, the old typo in the old version, the, the sinner, the three N sinner? Well, I don't know how many N's these sinners have, but too many for the Pharisees. And they are horrified that Jesus would receive such. And that's the context. Verse 3, and he spake this parable unto them, saying, so you got the context now? Uh, in rhetorical studies, there's a thing called the rhetorical situation. And the situation describes the moment and all of the details that determine the type of rhetoric that will be used. And, and, rhetoric, just in, and rhetoric doesn't have to be manipulative. That's not what I'm saying. Rhetoric sometimes gets a negative connotation. Rhetoric is just persuasion, and Jesus is trying to persuade people. And so he finds himself in a situation that calls for a, ter a certain type of persuasive power on his part. He's going to draw upon the persuasive power of a parable. Remember parables? Lower the defenses. I can sneak past the rational mind that wants to rationalize and justify themselves and think, I'm doing fine. Oh no, with the with the, the sentries at the gate lulled to sleep by this entertaining story, hmm, now the moral of the story can come tiptoeing in and reveal itself. 
Now, the rhetorical situation for Jesus, what he finds himself in, he's the speaker and he's got an important message to, to share. His audience is a tricky one, though. It's a mixed multitude filled with publicans and sinners on the one side, sinners who know they're sinners, and then scribes and Pharisees on the other side, which are sinners who don't know that they're sinners. <laughs> I mean, it's all it is are sinners all around him. That's all Jesus has to associate with. That's all of us. But in this situation, you have sinners judging other sinners. You have people who think they're better than others and don't want those lesser people to have any seat in the house. How am I going to persuade the humble that they're worthy of the seat, of an even higher seat than society will give them? How can I convince the prideful that they need to move down a lot of chairs, actually clear out to make room for more people to come and sit alongside them? I have a, a goal here, various, a mixed audience. I'm going to use a certain genre, story, a parable. What will I say to illustrate my point? He will then teach three parables for the price of one. I hope to, if the first one doesn't quite get past the defenses, he's sending wave after wave of rhetorical attack. Hopefully something breaks down the Pharisee's door and it dawns on them. Is he talking about us? Do I need to change? Yeah, you think? So it's the parable of the lost sheep, followed by the parable of the lost coin, followed by the parable of the lost son, the prodigal son. I love these three. And they're all teaching the same principle, more or less. Joseph Smith once said, if you want to understand a parable, then realize that it's answering a question. It's responding to a rhetorical situation to get technical. And if you can figure out what the question was, then the answer starts to make more sense. It's like playing Jeopardy, okay? What, what we get is the answer. We've got to backtrack. What kind of question would elicit that? We're getting three stories about the lost being found. Huh. Oh, okay, because you have scribes and Pharisees murmuring behind the scenes because Jesus is out finding the lost and bringing them in. And they don't want those lost people to be found. Okay, we got the rhetorical situation down? Well, let's get to the rhetoric then. Let's get to the story. Verse 4 through 6 is the parable of the lost sheep. It's an absolute masterpiece. Remember we saw uh, a Matthew version of this that wasn't quite as good as Luke's. But it had some good detail. Uh, what man of you, Jesus says, having an hundred sheep, that's a pretty good sized flock, right? If he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness. The JST says, and go into the wilderness, which makes more sense. Were you just going to leave them in the wilderness to fend for themselves? Oh no, to perish the thought. You remember even young David with his little flock? When he went to go face Goliath, he left those sheep in the care of a, an under-shepherd, a keeper, someone that'll watch over them. Well, something similar is obviously going to happen here. Otherwise, you're going to end up with 99 other lost sheep by the time you get home with the one you found. But no, he keeps them, he leaves them, so that he can then go out into the wilderness. That's probably where this lost sheep has wandered. Okay? Remember the Matthew version says go, he goes into the mountains, Ooh, great symbol of the temple of the Lord. Can I ascend to get some heavenly help? In this case, it's the wilderness. Leave the wicked world behind. 
and go out into a place without all of those worldly distractions. Go out to a place where you can be with God. Seek in the wilderness for people that only God can find. Well, this good shepherd is going to go after that which is lost until he find it. Important word there, until. In the Matthew version, it was if he ends up finding it, then of course he's going to be thrilled. But here, I'm not going to settle for an if. I mean, yes, I need to honor the sheep's agency once we get this to a human level in parable number three. Uh, and so that it is an if because they might not choose to change. But I'm not going to give up until the story is completely over. And is it ever? Is it ever completely over? No, we don't give up. We keep searching, climbing the mountain, beating the bushes, going through the entire wilderness until we find it. And when he hath found it, so it wasn't an if, it's now a when. When he hath found it, what's he do? He layeth it on his shoulders. Now he's probably tired by now, this good shepherd is, but he's more concerned about the sheep than himself. And so I'll lift this lamb up. I'll put it on my own shoulders and I'll come home rejoicing. That's the key term that you'll keep seeing over and over throughout this chapter. He brings the sheep home rejoicing. And what's a party when you're partying alone? That doesn't sound like much. So when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep, which was lost. Such a simple story, but what a magnificent message. Pay attention to those details. This is a man, the shepherd, what man of you. He has a hundred sheep and lost one. So he's only at 1% loss. You, I mean, if you're at 99% of your flock, just round up. You're good, okay? It was only one, a negligible fraction, not a big deal. But for this man, that's still too much to lose, especially if he's thinking about the individual sheep. Yes, collectively, it's only one out of 100, but for that sheep, it's the only sheep that it really, really cares about, okay? It's one out of one. So let's make sure that we do all that we can. What... Would this little sheep, this little lamb be up against if it's out in the wilderness, some untamed territory with the kinds of lions and bears that young David had to grapple with? Am I concerned about what it is facing? In which case, yeah, you better believe I'm going to go out and search until I find Once I do, I will bring it back on my shoulders. Isaiah makes it even more tender than that. As, as much as I love the thought of carrying it home, the shoulders is still one step removed from Isaiah's beautiful metaphor, which is to carry the lamb in your bosom. Just hold it right there next to your heart. That's how much you rejoice over this. And it's the joy Jesus wants to emphasize. The moral of the story for him is verse 7. I say unto you that likewise, joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth, more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. How's that for a shepherd's heart? Oh, lamb on shoulders, sheep in the bosom, friends and neighbors all around, rejoicing over the return of a lost lamb. Now, in case for the one parable wasn't enough, let's give you a second. 
further lower the defenses and give you the parable of the lost coin in verses 8 through 10. This one's even simpler than the first, but he changes some of the metaphors to make sure that, or some of the figures in the story, to make sure that other people within his rhetorical situation know that he's speaking to them too. The first one was for a man. This one's the star of the show is a woman. Either what woman, having 10 pieces of silver, if she lose one piece, so now we're talking about a 10% loss. Another detail, by the way, to recognize here, it's nobody's fault that a sheep just wanders off. It's what they do. Okay? If you're a sheep, you're supposed to wander, right? That's, what, that's Isaiah's point. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. Sheep and straying are synonymous. And so, uh, poor shepherd, it's not that I was neglectful, but I'm going to go find it no matter what. In this case, the woman did lose one piece. There's culpability here, okay? She's the one that lost it. And she lost 10% of what she has. This is more significant. So what's she going to do? Doth she not light a candle and sweep the house and seek diligently till she find it? So again, there's this sense of I'm not giving up until it's found. And when she hath found it, she calleth her friends and her neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I had lost. That same sense of of gratitude and of rejoicing and of bring people together uh, to gather around this moment of joy. Okay, I'm, I'm, there's not enough room in my heart to fill to to contain all of the joy I feel. So I want that joy to spill out to other people. Same kind of moral of, to this story as to the last. Likewise, I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. How beautiful details here. If we're dealing with culpability and accountability, if I did something to lose a coin, something of obvious worth, value, how can I make up for that? What can I do to change? When people leave the church, for example, simply because they've wandered off, I don't feel guilty, but I do feel responsible to help. I do care about that sheep. I mean, this is, this is Ammon, right? Who's concerned about the sheep, not just about the shepherds. The shepherds, the Lamanite shepherds were concerned about themselves. We're going to get killed by the king. And it's Ammon that's like, but what about the sheep? They're in the hands of some pretty awful, wicked shepherds. We got we to gotta go save them. And if we save them, we'll end up saving ourselves. But let's think about the sheep first and go after them. Let's prioritize that. Now, in the, in the case of the woman, though, it, it is her fault. She did something to lose the coin. Whether, it, I mean, negligence, forgetfulness. I, maybe I didn't mean to, but I didn't. Maybe this is sins of, of omission rather than a sin of commission. But I wasn't there for people when I should have been. And now they're gone. What can I do to fix it? And I do love the list. To light a candle, to sweep the house, and to seek diligently. Maybe they're closer than we think. There's just not enough light for us to recognize them. Or enough light 
to point the way home for them to come. If we want to bring back people, this is, this is reactivation. This is helping people come back into full fellowship or regain their testimony and come back to church. I sometimes worry, is it our own lack of light that justifies them in their lost condition? Maybe they don't even realize they are lost. But there's not enough light back home to draw them. Maybe it's a matter of us needing to sweep the house. So increase our light, our example, be better salt, with better savor, right? But to be the light of the world in a city set on a hill to the point that people actually want to come and join us. If they see and come, well, I hope that we've cleaned things up a bit. I hope we've swept the house of whatever dirt was causing problems to begin with. It's so much easier to find things when things are clean. <laughs> and so often things get lost. They're, all, they're still right there. We've just allowed other things to, to keep us from seeing them. And that's a problem. So sweep the house and then seek diligently. We can try a lot harder than we do to reach out to those lost loved ones all around us. And again, once they come, it's party time. <laughs> Rejoice in the worth of this soul. Now, it's obvious that it's souls we're talking about once we get to story number three. And the sheep was a soul. And the, the, the coin was a soul. Well, the son, the prodigal son, is obviously a soul as well. And we've really crescendoed here. This is the grand finale of these three parables of the lost. Hopefully, this gets to the heart of those scribes and Pharisees who are judging the sinners and publicans that, are, that they have to share the table with. But notice the story. Such a famous one, but let's take it apart slowly and put it all back together with some added insight. Verse 11, he said, A certain man had two sons. So he went from 1% to 10% to a full 50%. And something that matters to you infinitely more than a sheep or coin ever could. This is one of my own sons. Now the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. Now, stop there. Wait a minute. Give you the portion of goods. That's your inheritance. Well, yeah, but it's my inheritance. I just, I'm asking for it. <laughs> no, son, you don't understand, see? Uh, you don't get your inheritance until I die. Father, may I repeat, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. Now, can you picture this poor father realizing what his son is suggesting here? You're acting as if I were dead. As if it were time for the inheritance to come and I'm no longer around to stand in your way? That's what you're asking for? You are treating me as if I were dead and you kind of want me to treat myself as if I were dead to you as well and just give you what you asked for and give in to those premature demands. This is painful. This is no lost lamb. This is a, this is a ram trying to go headbutt the, the good shepherd. I'm out of here, Dad. Give me what's mine. Stop standing in my way. And yet miraculously, what's the next phrase? And he divided unto them his living. He did it. He honored 
his son's agency. Remember how we started today? This man, Jesus, tell my brother to divide the inheritance. Jesus knows what it's like to be this father and picture the father feeling, I'm not a divider. I'm not trying to divide you from your brother. I'm not trying to, please don't make me divide you from me. Please don't do this. Please stay. I will continue to provide for you here under the shelter of my own roof. I even wonder if, what does this man, this father do for a living? I don't know. But if it's agriculture, if it's land, if it's not liquid assets, then what is he going to have to do to give this younger son his inheritance? What do I do? I sell half the farm? Do, you don't understand. This is not. And yet the father honors that agency. At the end of the day, that's all we can do in the face of our prodigal sons or siblings or parents or friends. Whoever it might be, if they choose to leave, we have to let them. Because part of my fear, especially as it's happening at an increasing rate, it seems, where we all seem to have family and friends that have left the church or are contemplating it, that we, we don't honor their agency. It's like over my dead body. We, and if they do leave, we have to get the last word in edgewise. And we yell out from the door that, they've, that they slam the door on us or we slam the door on them and yell out as they don't ever think about coming back. This is it. Have you counted the cost? Because what it's costing you is everything, including me. Ah, by doing that, it tends to justify them in their choice to depart. The way Elder Hales used to say it, the worst thing you can do when somebody says you're not a Christian is to prove them right by the way you respond. And the worst thing you can do for a, to a departing prodigal is to give them something to justify their choice to leave. Like, yep, and I knew he was going to be that way, so good riddance to him. Glad I'm out of here. I left because the church was judgmental, and the church judged me every step of the way on my way out. They are guilty as charged. So why would I ever come back? Now, we have to be so much more careful, and we have to honor their agency. Now, we talked about this last year in the, when I taught the Samuel principle. Remember this? When, the, when a bunch of prodigal people wanted to have a king, and Samuel knew it was the wrong choice, but God said, honor their agency, give them their king. Hearken unto their voice, he says. But notice, remember this from last year. He also said, how be it yet, so before you do, two things. Protest solemnly unto them. In other words, tell them how you feel about it. And I'm sure the father of the prodigal did that too. And secondly, show them the manner of the king that they'll have. In other words, try to help them see the future of this poor decision. I think either we, it's, we do the how be it yet side or we do the hearken unto their voice side, but we're not very good at doing both. It's a contrary that has to be proven and it's a tough balance to strike. We either honor agency and leave them without even realizing how we felt about their decision, that it broke our heart. And we never warned them of where we thought this road would lead. Or we do all of the how-be-it-yet stuff, and it's like over my dead body, and there's no way you're going to do it because, I'm, oh, I'm going to protest solemnly. You better believe it. And I'll show you the future and then forcibly keep you from falling into it. 
Oh, that's not honoring agency at all. I'm sure that the Father here did, did those things, but when all was said and done, agency must be honored because we can't help it, especially when a child is old enough to make decisions for themselves. Uh, agency will be honored come what may. We might as well do it with a proper attitude. Otherwise, our response will justify their actions in their mind. Okay? We, we, we together on this so far? Now, the father has honored the agency. He's divided the inheritance. He's given this younger son his due. And what's he going to do with it? Verse 13, not many days after... The young son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country. Now, he doesn't name the country, but well, from its description, it sounds a lot like Babylon. And sure enough, that's a far cry from God's good country in Zion. But he goes, he takes that journey. It's far away. And what does he do? There he wasted his substance with riotous living. So it wasn't enough for this young man to get what he wanted, his inheritance. I mean, what's the point of an inheritance if I can't spend it, right? Eat, drink, and be merry. That's what it's for. So let's go to this. And the merriest I can be is in the farthest possible country, as far away from these standards that have been stifling me all these years. So he goes, but it's not just spending, it's wasting. The word there is to squander. It's to separate. In fact, the word can also mean to winnow which is interesting. Remember winnowing is throwing the grain up to separate the wheat from the, the chaff from the kernel. The irony here in this winnowing is he's winnowing away, he's blowing away the kernel and ends up only holding the chaff. That's the wrong kind of winnowing. The Greek word here also means to scatter, but there's a prefix to it that means that intensifies it. So it's to thoroughly scatter, to totally waste. To do it so intensely that you can't even remember what you spent it on. That money is just gone. And he's got nothing to show for it. There, I, don't, I don't even know where the chaff went. What, what do I do now? Now, the other word here to, to wrestle with is riotous. Which means, uh, the Greek there is wasteful and prodigal. Prodigal itself as a, as a word is interesting because we always think of that as some kind of like immoral thing. But prodigal is more of this reckless and wasteful living. We don't know specifics of what he did with that money, how he spent it. We just know that he had no thought for the future. He didn't count the cost. He didn't settle anything in his heart. He had no plan here. Just reckless, wasteful. He's acting as if the money is never going to run out. And that's taking abundance mentality to the, ex the wrong extreme, okay? Uh, he needed to save some for a rainy day. He's acting as if his debts will never come due, that it's freedom from responsibility. The piper will never come to be paid. There's no consequence. This is hedonism totally oblivious of its result. But the future comes. The piper comes calling, and it's time to pay him. In verse 14, when he had spent all, and that's exactly how much Babylon wants to take from you, all of it, to leave you with absolutely nothing. Compare that to the Lord's 
abundance, where he multiplies loaves and fishes and still leaves you with 12 baskets full of leftovers. No, spent all. You've got nothing left in there in Babylon. And go figure. There arose a mighty famine in the land. See, it's that famine you should have been preparing for all along. Imagine what Egypt would have done without Joseph. Telling them in their seven years of plenty, oh, we need to store this stuff, okay? We need to prepare for the not-so-rainy day that's on its way. If it weren't for Joseph's wisdom, it would have been eat, drink, and be merry for seven years of, of plenty. And then the entire kingdom would have come crashing down in the seven years of want. Well, this mighty famine is now in the land. And he, the prodigal, began to be in want, which is something he'd probably never experienced in his entire life. He is now approaching rock bottom. He begins to be in want. Well, what's he going to do now? He went and joined himself to a citizen of that country. So he's looking for help in the wrong places. He's still in the far country. He knows he's in trouble, but he still won't come to the true source of help. He can't do that. Because if dad knows what I've done with his, with his inheritance, that I took his life and reduced it down to death and then even wasted that until there's nothing left. No wonder I had to do this in some distant country where no one would know about it. But I can't go back and confess. I can't go and show my face back home. So what does Babylon have to offer? They, I know they're really good at taking. What do they have to give? I join to a citizen of that country, and what does he do? He sent him into his fields to feed swine. Now, this is a Jewish boy. How's he going to feel about pigs? Oh, he'd grown up considering them an unclean animal, and now I'm lower than the unclean animal because they have food, and I don't. Because the story goes on, he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat. I mean, I'm not worthy of the leftovers of the loaves and fishes, but how about the leftovers of these unclean pigs? I have no pearls to cast their way. Do they have any husks to cast mine? It's interesting because if he's joined himself to a citizen of that country, wouldn't there be some worldly wage to earn? What's minimum wage in Babylon? Oh, it's nothing. It takes all and gives none. To the point that even when you are working for Babylon, this man seems, this boy, this son, seems to have been reduced to absolute, not only poverty, but slavery. Because it doesn't seem like he's getting paid. If he's dying of hunger to the point that the leftovers of what he, this, it's so fascinating. This Babylonian swineherd, uh, he cares for his pigs more than for his people. And I can use the people to care for the pigs. We receive our wages of him whom we list to obey. And when we go and become indentured servants to the wicked world, that's the bondage of sin. That's the slavery of sinfulness. And, and there's no way out. You want to talk about rock bottom? He's here. Maybe he's gotten into debt. He, he, he was so prodigal 
that not only did he spend all that he had, he wasted it all in riotous living. Maybe he even got into the hole. Maybe this citizen is a creditor and you are now in debtor's prison. Uh, well, a prison of sorts, a prison policed by pigs. And go feed them and well, maybe they'll pay you for your labor. Save a husk or two. By the end of this part of the story, it says that no man gave unto him. Which would be ironic considering that if you were wasting your substance in riotous living, didn't you, wouldn't you have made some friends along the way? I mean, another round on the house, or not on the house, it's on me. Best way to make friends is to buy them, right? Every man is friend to him that giveth gifts. The irony is, where's the loyalty? Uh, there isn't much in Babylon. Once they milked you for all your worth, they'll leave you high and dry, and no man will give to you. No true friends that will distinguish, distinguish themselves during your times of need. That's the irony. To have left a community of hypocrites, as you said, on your way out. Oh, nobody, we, we, we don't live up to our high ideals. Having standards? Yeah. Hypocrisy is an occupational hazard to anyone who has standards. Although that's not hypocrisy. It's called humanity. It's called being a mere mortal. It's only hypocrisy when I'm trying to be what I'm not, or like trying to suggest that I'm better than I am. Admitting that I'm not, but holding to the standard is, again, humanity, not hypocrisy. But to be at this point now, go back to those so-called hypocrites, and you will find a, a humaneness along with their humanness. It's amazing how kind a community of saints can be. But this man wants nothing to do with them. He's left them all behind. He's hit rock bottom. But as I've said before, when you're at rock bottom, you're finally back in contact with the rock. The question is, how do I feel about the rock? Verse 17 is the key moment, the hinge point in the whole parable. And when he came to himself, that's when everything starts to change. It's when he's hit rock bottom and it's all going to be up from there. Okay? This is the hardest part, though, for parents of prodigals or friends of those that have, that have left. Because we can't control that part. In fact, we're not even there with them to, to make it happen. Interesting detail there, too. The father will let the son honor the agency and let the prodigal go to that far country, but the father cannot follow him there. I'm not saying you can't go to the bar and drag them out, or go to the homeless shelter and find them and bring them home, or to the addiction recovery center, or get them to the addiction recovery center, wherever you found them to start. No, you can go to those kinds of seedy places. What I'm saying is to lower your standard, to join them in that far country as if you chose to live there right alongside them. That you cannot do. That's honoring agency in an unhealthy way. That's an unproven contrary. And we're outside of the Goldilocks zone with 
so much mercy that now we're condoning sin. Now, remember the woman with the issue of, or the woman with taken in adultery. We learned that lesson. We've got to be more balanced than that. But what are you going to do? The man comes, the young man comes to himself. He realizes, what am I doing feeding unclean animals and then trying to feed on what the unclean feed upon? Oh, I am, I'm a, this is a far cry from what I had back home. Oh, home. Home. Could I ever go back? Is there a chance for return? Now, here's something a parent can do, something a friend can do. Uh, I can't join you in the, that, that fallen state. Uh, I can't force the coming to yourself. I can pray for it. I can fast for it. I'm sure that this father was. We know that Alma the elder was doing that for his prodigal son, Alma the younger. But he couldn't force the turning. Not even the angel could force the turning. He just stood in his way and said, do you understand where this path is leading? Okay, if you want to be destroyed of yourself, go ahead, but quit destroying the, the church of God. Right? Amazing confrontation with the prodigal son. This young man, though, has now come to himself. He's going to think of home. The question is, how's he going to feel about home as he thinks about it? And that is something that the father of this prodigal can do. He can act in such a way that the first thoughts of home will be positive. Because that's the case with, with this prodigal. Keep reading, okay? When he came to himself, he said, how many hired servants of my father's and that's all he's thinking about is hired servant because that's what he is. Actually, I don't know if he's hired. He may be just indentured. And it might not be servant. It might be slave. But, at least, but that's, all, that's as high as he can think at, for, at this point. How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare? And I perish with hunger. They've got bread. I've got husks. They have more than enough. I don't have enough to survive. They live I'm dying, so what am I going to do? Based on the way his father treated his servants, with an abundance approach, with generosity, with goodness, he decided, I will arise and go to my father. I'm going to try. I'm going to face the music. I'll go confess. In fact, he says, this is his plan. I will say unto him, and notice the words that he was probably rehearsing in his mind with every step he took from that far country to come back home. Here's what I'm going to say. Father, I hope he'll still take that word. I hope he'll still accept that title. I hope he doesn't throw it back in my face that I'm not your father anymore. Remember, I'm dead to you. Go talk to the grave. I hope he doesn't say that. I don't think he will. He treats the servants really, really well. He's never done anything to, to make me feel that I'm less than a son to him. So maybe he can accept that one word. Father. Now here comes the confession. I have sinned against heaven and before thee. So there's a vertical sin. He's broken the first great commandment. There's a horizontal sin. He's broken the second. I've sinned against heaven, against God, before thee, against my father. And as a result, I am no more worthy to be called thy son. That's why I hesitate to even call you father. But because you've always been such a good one, I'm still holding on to that title. I hope you'll let me hold on to my title as son. Then again, I'm not worthy of that, so forget it. 
forget I even asked. I'm not going to be your son anymore, but can I at least be your servant? That's, that's the final petition he offers here. Make me as one of thy hired servants. Because at least you treat yours better there in Zion than they're treated here in Babylon. Now, do you understand what we're, what we're seeing so far? I've, I honored your agency, the father could say. I showed you that you matter to me even more than I matter to myself. I didn't take your departure personally as some kind of failing on my part or as some kind of attack against me on yours. I let you go and I loved you. In fact, I still do. You're off in that far country. I, I, I shudder to think what's happening to you. Less is about what is, what's he doing out there and more what's being done to him. Oh, I take you home in an instant, in a heartbeat. I hope I treated you in such a way that you know that. So that when you eventually come to yourself, and remember, everyone someday will. Someday every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is the Christ. It's amazing how hearts end up being softened even if they have to be broken first there in Babylon. But the tentacles of divine providence really do reach out and pull at the heartstrings to help people think back of home. But that's where the emotion comes in. How will they feel about it? Will they think, oh, I can go home? No, actually, home? I can't go home. Dad slammed the door. He threw that last word out in edgewise and that bridge is burnt from both directions. Can't do it. Then again, how we treated the prodigal, how we treat everyone else. Maybe there's hope to come home. He figured there was. So in verse 20, he arose and came to his father. But he's not there yet. When he was yet a great way off, not quite as afar off in this far country. He started the journey, but he's barely begun. Okay? And yet he began. And remember what we learned in the Book of Mormon? As soon as we repent, then immediately the great plan of salvation begins to work in our favor instead of against us. As soon as we turn, that's the word for repent, as soon as we start to come unto Christ, then Christ comes rushing towards us. When he was yet a great way off. His father saw him, had compassion, not anger, not frustration, not vengeance, not, not even justice. It's just mercy. It's just come, calm with passion, suffering, feeling. It's like Jesus when he first saw the multitudes in their hunger and just was filled with compassion and nothing else. Well, the father saw him. He had compassion. He ran. He fell on his neck. He kissed him. Think about all those verbs on the father's part. When the only verb on our part was to come to ourselves and then come to our father. If we'll just have a moment of clarity to the point that we see our sins for what they really are, See our condition for what it really is as a fallen one. 
and realize that in our fallenness, there is hope for being raised in newness of life if we'll simply come back. So come, come to yourself, come to the Father. And what will the Father do? He will more than come. He'll see, he'll have compassion, he'll run, he'll fall, and he'll kiss. With a father's tender heart, with all the feeling of a tender parent, is how Lehi says it to Laman and Lemuel. There's prodigal sons, plural, for you. This is a father who's ever ready to welcome any prodigal home. Now the story isn't over because this young man has been rehearsing his, his line every step of the way. Now he didn't get to rehearse it long because there weren't that many steps before the father caught up with him. But in verse 21, the son said unto him, Father, and then maybe pausing to see how the, this man would react to that title, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, so far so good, I'm just going along with what I planned on saying, I am no more worthy to be called thy son, okay, dress rehearsal paid off, now this is going just as planned, but here's the irony, he didn't even get to finish. Remember what he was going to say after that, can I at least be thy hired servant? No, he didn't even get that far. His father doesn't let him finish before he interrupts him with even greater compassion than his son was going to ask for. This is immediately to the woman taken in adultery. Neither do I condemn thee. Stop right there. Stop in your tracks, son. And you called me father. I'll take it. You've confessed. You sinned against heaven and in thy sight. I'll take that confession. That's it. I'm no more worthy to be called thy son. Thank you for lowering yourself to that level. But don't put yourself in the lowest seat in the house. You deserve to sit higher than that. So come up with me, friend, son. Ascend with me. I have condescended to come to this level. Now con ascend to come back home with me. The way the father says it as he interrupts the son is so beautiful, so moving. The father said to his servants, see, he already had those, <laughs> and he treated them really well, right? He's not considering his son a servant. No, he turns to his servants and says to them, bring forth the best robe, best one we've got. Put it on him. Put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet. You see, slaves typically went barefoot in that culture. And this slave to sin, barefoot in Babylon, He's come home. And how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of anyone that is headed in the right direction. Let's put shoes on those feet, shall we? And bring hither the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. We saw rejoicing over sheep. We saw rejoicing over a coin. Oh, let's make merry over this son of the father. For this my son was dead. And is alive again. That's how dramatic it was. I mean, he treated me as dead, but that made him dead in a way as well. But he's not anymore. He's alive again. This is a rising from the grave. As dramatic and glorious as what we're going to see soon in John chapter 11.
with Lazarus. He's alive again. He was lost and is found. And sure enough, with that kind of invitation, they began to be merry. How could they not be? A robe, a ring, a fatted calf. Elder Holland gave a talk by that title when he was president of BYU. It's still one of the best talks I've ever heard from him. To speak of returning prodigals in those terms, I'll try to include the link, if I remember, the link to this talk, to that talk in the, in the description of the video. It's so good. And just to hear a very young Elder Holland describe the love of our Father in bringing every prodigal home. But think about what those things symbolize. A robe, the best one. Think about what he's been reduced to, down to nakedness of sorts. Think about Adam and Eve reduced to nakedness and needing a coat of skins to cover them. Imagine us coming to our senses, realizing that we are completely uncovered by the atonement of Christ, and yet he comes with his robes of righteousness. That is the best robe we've got. And he covers us in it. Secondly, the ring. A ring was often not just symbol of wealth, but symbol of identity and authority. The ring is like the seal of approval. Stamp it into the, the hot wax as you're sealing a letter closed, right? And to bring, you, you took the inheritance. You, it, 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 you went off into this far country and wasted it. Who are you anymore? Whose are you? you You've got no claim on us. You severed that tie. Oh, forget it. Take my ring, my signet. Remember who you are. You have my name, my identity, my authority. You're mine, always will be. The shoes. Oh, to make your journey a little more comfortable. Because there's still a long ways to go in life. Let's take that journey together, son. You're no longer a slave. You're a son. And let's kill the fatted calf and rejoice. Quit chastening yourself over your past. Let's rejoice right now in the present. With that joy, we can then move forward into a future of hope. Now, the story could have ended there, and it would have been... It still would have been one of the greatest parables ever taught, a masterpiece to this point. It would have taught the same lesson that the previous two parables of the lost have taught us. Do all you can to help something or to find the lost, bring them home, and then rejoice when they're there. But then the plot thickens because this parable continues. Verse 25 through 27. Now his elder son, oh yeah, that's right. He only lost 50%. What was the other 50% doing back home? His elder son, and remember that, Older, he's the one that gets the double portion. He's the true inheritor of the father. This elder son was in the field, probably out there working as usual. As he came and drew nigh to the house, he heard music and dancing. This is quite the, quite the party after all. He called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And the servant said unto him, oh, It's like uh, disbelief. Haven't you heard? Thy brother is come. And thy father hath killed the fatted calf because he hath received him safe and sound. Safe and sound actually suggests what the father may have been worrying about and, and fearing. Fearing the worst. That will my son survive his time away in Babylon? 
No wonder I need to protest solemnly. No wonder I need to show him the future of this decision because things get rough there. Most of us can admit some of the damage that was done in our forays into enemy territory. And to think of someone I love off in that far country, oh, I, I shudder to think what might happen. But he's safe and he's sound. He survived the experience. There's probably going to be some recovery required, some healing, and, and therefore some helping. But come and rejoice because he's alive, he's here, he's back. But how does the son respond? Verse 28, he was angry and would not go in. Therefore came his father out and entreated him. The same father that was seeing the, the prodigal come from a distance is seeing the elder son remaining at a distance and wondering why. He goes out, he entreats him. And the son answering said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee. The whole time your other son's been gone. And even before he left, many years, I've been your right-hand man. I've been your, your birthright son, and I've been living up to that birthright. Neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment. I don't have a prodigal bone in my body. I've never strayed. I've never transgressed at any time. And yet thou, thou never gavest me a kid. I mean, you fatted calf for the, this other son of yours. You never even gave me a, a young goat. You never gave me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. But no, as soon as this, thy son was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. Can you sense how angry this... And maybe we call it righteous indignation. Or maybe just indignation. But do you sense the frustration on his part that he feels completely justified in feeling? Notice his language, by the way. Who did he want to make merry with? To get a goat from the father, a goat from the herd? He's probably the one out there caring for the herd. It all belongs to me. It's all going to be mine as soon as my father does die. I'm just, I'm willing to wait. But you never let me get a kid early to go make merry with my friends. Ooh, interesting, he's talking friends instead of family. But also, speaking of family, notice how he refers to his brother. He doesn't refer to him as brother. He says to his father, thy son. Did you get a sense of separation there? For the father, it's, he's my son, you're my son. I'll never, I'll never take away that title. No servitude here. It's sonship. But for the other son, it's, I am not my brother's keeper. And I'm not going to keep my brother. He is your son. If you want to claim him. He didn't claim you. But you go rejoice with him. After all he's done to you. After all he's done to himself. I don't even know what he's done. Although I've got a few suggestions. He's devoured thy living. That's an even stronger verb than waste it. To squander it. No, you, he devoured it. And in what? With harlots? See, that's the interesting thing. We know he was a spendthrift. We know he wasted money and squandered it. He was prodigal. He was reckless. But, and for all we know, he, de he definitely could have 
wasted some of that money in, in the type of riotous living that involves immorality. But it's interesting that the parable keeps it vague, whereas the older brother makes it very specific. This was fornication. This was hired prostitution. That's where all your money went, Dad. This older brother is angry. He seems stubborn. He seems to be keeping score. He seems to have a sense of superiority. He's emotionally distant and unempathetic and judgmental. Sound like anyone you know? Most importantly, sound like anyone you see in the mirror. Hold that thought and let's let the father interrupt again. In verse 31, the father said unto him, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. <laughs> the whole thing. I already gave your other brother his inheritance. Everything left is yours. But then he says, it was meet that we should make merry and be glad for this, thy brother. Notice how he returns that, that title back. It's not just my son. It's your brother. You've got to see him that way. This, thy brother, was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and is found. I wonder if what the father is getting at here, especially with this statement that it's all yours, because this is the end of the story. We don't know how things are going to go on, but that is what allows us to try to picture how to fill in those blanks. What's the future going to look like for both brothers? You see, it's awkward. It's really awkward right now. I wonder how the... Oh, it's so interesting to think. The, the prodigal son had rehearsed what he was going to say to his father. I wonder if he tried to rehearse what he was going to say to his brother. And if he knew, if his brother has always been this way and he's lived in the shadow of this brother and I'd never measure up to him and no one, and if he's been that judgmental and he's holier than thou or, or just I cannot measure up to him, then get me out from under his shadow. Get me out of here. Did he rehearse what he'd say to a brother? Did he just couldn't even go there because I'm too afraid? Uh, maybe that's I just want to be a servant so I live in the servant's quarters and I don't have to face my older brother with all of his righteous indignation and judgment and condemnation. We don't know any of that. It ends with a conversation between a father and his perfect, sinless, undeviating oldest son. Huh. Are some light bulbs coming on in your mind? Are we starting to wonder what the father expects of this oldest son, first of all. You see, if all that I have is yours, and you're the oldest son, which means you have the birthright and the double portion, you're, do you remember what double portions are for, son? They're to care for everyone in the family that remains vulnerable. There's no mention of the mother of the prodigal son, by the way. Most like, perhaps based on what's on the page or what isn't on the page, perhaps this father is a widower. I shudder to think what a mother of a prodigal son goes through. 
with all of her tender mother heart. But a birthright son is responsible for the mother once the father dies. Because she's a widow and it's, you're, nobody's more vulnerable in ancient Israel than a widow. Uh, the, the birthright son is responsible for the sisters until they get married. I mean, some, we've talked about this before. The double portion isn't to enrich you. It's to give you something to be able to give to others. This is rich toward God. It's rich toward your father. It's your father's side. It's, your, it's you receiving as an inheritance, not just your father's rewards, but your father's responsibilities. You're supposed to treat every other vulnerable member as, of the family as the father would. And from that double portion, you meet their needs. Well, I know it's, he's not a female. I know he's not your mom or your sisters. But your brother is in an incredibly vulnerable position again. Will you treat him as a father would? Because I can't force you to give out of your share something to make up for the share he already lost. He already took what he had. I can't force you to, but oh, I pray that you will. I pray you'll become a father to your little brother and the kind of father that I've always been to him and to you. Please, son. Don't be like the scribes and the Pharisees. Remember, we're back to our rhetorical situation. Who's his audience? What's his purpose? What's he trying to get them to see? No wonder he sprung the trap on the third <laughs> offensive. No wonder the first two stories lowered the defenses. And like, oh yeah, I guess lost shall be found. Fine, Jesus is finding these people, whatever. Third time, it's getting a little closer. Wow, he really means a lot to this is family. But then the third time was the only time he adds this addendum that really makes a pointed argument against the pride of the Pharisees and scribes. These older brothers who think they're better than people who have strayed like publicans and sinners. That's the amazing thing. Jesus, in telling this story, is the father of the prodigal and the father of the prideful. This father had two prodigal sons. <laughs> One had issues with worldliness and the other had issues with pride. One would give way to the third great uh, or the third temptation, but the older one was giving way to the to the second. So Jesus, with this mixed multitude, with sinners who know it and sinners who don't, I'm trying to teach you all to change, to get along with each other, and to reconcile yourselves to me. It's amazing what he's doing here. It's absolutely genius what he's teaching and how he's teaching and who he's teaching to. But it's even more than that. Because there were times when I thought of myself as the older son here because I tried to do what was right as a kid. My parents will admit that I failed, but I tried really hard. And I wanted to be the son that never left the father's side. I wanted to be the one that, that never, they didn't have to worry about. I wanted them to be able to say to me that many years, 
have you served us and you've never transgressed our commandments. Well, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, right, son? <laughs> Thank heaven for repentance. But that's the irony. Those who think that the story, that they're the older brother in the story, usually don't think they need repentance. That's the scribes and Pharisees. So let's rewind and just do this, and then we'll, we'll take a little break. <laughs> okay, this is kind of a halfway point uh, of what we're trying to study this week. I know it's long, okay, but Jesus gives us so much to chew on. So ponder this. Think about what he said back in the first parable about the 1% that's gone, and he comes back. But the, when the shepherd brings the sheep home, there's more joy. I mean, he rejoices. It even makes you wonder, like, to have a party... What do you eat at a, at a shepherd's party? I mean, if the father of the prodigal son is going to kill the fatted calf, wouldn't a shepherd, like, sacrifice one of its sheep to feed the guests? I mean, certain, it's not going to be the one that you just found, because that, that doesn't make any sense. But you're going to sacrifice one of the ones that stayed? Yeah, okay. But listen to this phrase. Once Jesus makes the moral of the story clear. There is more joy in heaven over the soul that repenteth than over ninety and nine just persons who have no need of repentance. Now, to be completely blunt and honest, that bugged me when I was a teenager. Because the thought of God preferring someone who wandered, strayed, but then came back, well, they got to go live it up and then returned and God prefers them over, the, over me because I'm trying. I didn't stray. I stayed in the flock. I tried to follow the good shepherd. And how dare you say that you're more grateful about their life than mine? I think sometimes there is a sense of I've been the good kid. How come I don't get the attention? How come I don't get the fatted calf? I, don't really, I didn't even get a kid to go eat with my friends. Do parents take for granted the good kids as they're so desperately worried about the ones who struggle and stray? Well, I never felt neglected by my parents or, or thought that my attempts at righteousness were being taken for granted. I'm not saying that. But I did wonder, how could God prefer the returning sinner to the good sheep. Well, if right now you're worrying about my pride, you're not alone. The Spirit was worrying about my pride too. And I remember one of those little self-proclaimed pity parties that I threw for myself, seeing my friends mess things up and, and yet think, well, they're probably going to return someday and got to like them more than I liked me. The Spirit came and whapped me upside the head with a two-by-four. I call these two-by-four revelations because it's not a still small voice. It's like smack you up. It's like, come on, Halverson, think about this. And this was the impression that I got. <laughs> Probably trying to mirror my own sarcasm. I felt the Spirit basically whisper, oh, so you're one of the, the 90 and 9 just persons who need no repentance? Wow. What, a, what an honor to be in your holy presence, Jared. Ooh, will you sign my scriptures? I mean, th this is amazing. 
Because think back to the way the verse is phrased. I said 99 just persons. Absolute justice. Never strayed, because that's what I said in the next phrase, who had no need of repentance. Really? That's you? <laughs> wow. Spotless record. I, I am in the presence of greatness. But why settle for only one ex example of that greatness? I mean, I'd love to meet your other 98 friends, Jared. Because to, to, to get all 99 of you, that would be amazing. So who else can you list? Please, just throw out some names. If eh, 98 might take a while. Let's go with, let's just get 50. Uh, 20? Just give me 10. And this is where it got really personal for me. As I was pondering this, and it suddenly dawned on me, oh, wait, you can't think of 99. You can't think of 50. You can't think of 10. You can only think of one, and you're not that one. So go ahead, tell me. List anyone that can be honestly described as just and never having any need of repentance. There is only one person that's ever lived that has the right to feel angry by this supposed superiority of sinners who come back and repent. And who's that? The one telling the story. Only he could have that twinge of frustration, and yet he never felt it. And for him to say, there's more joy in heaven over the soul. See, now we've got to flip the numbers here. He's the one, and his audience are the 99. He's the only one who never strayed. Everyone else did, and yet what's the Lord saying? There's more joy in heaven with my Father over you, sinners, who choose to repent, who come to yourselves and come home. The Father has more joy over your return than over mine. And I'm not jealous. You see, my return was never in question. Yours always was. Why do you think the Father sent me? For he so loved the world that I came to make sure that every sheep would get home. That's why I'm the Good Shepherd. That every lost coin could be found. That's the riches of my goodness. And that every prodigal son, no matter how far the country, could come home to a father that is watching and waiting, ready to run and fall upon your neck and kiss you. Now do you know who the older brother is in the prodigal son story? It's not us. Even in our judgmentalness and pride, that makes us the prodigal. <laughs> as soon as we uh, exhibit the same kind of negative behaviors as the, as the older brother, we automatically turn younger brother. Because we don't qualify for the description here of someone who has never left the father's side, who is ever with him and never at any time transgressed the father's commandment. Who is the older brother of the prodigal? Jesus. But that's the irony. 
In some ways, he's completely like this one, in his perfect allegiance to the Father. But in other ways, he's completely unlike this older brother. Because he's not judging us harshly. He's not angry at our return. The older brother of the prodigal son in the story is what a perfect older brother would naturally feel. We don't have that type of elder brother. No natural man in him. In fact, it's not just that he's going to swallow hard and try not to be judgmental and allow his father to go out and bring that son of his home. No, in this case, this perfect older brother is going to run right alongside the father. In fact, he will descend to the far country in ways that the father simply cannot. He will not just hit rock bottom with us, he will be the rock that's still beneath us. He won't just let the father kill the fatted calf. He will provide himself as the lamb without blemish. He won't just let the father give the best robe. He will provide his own robe of righteousness to cover our nakedness. I don't know how better to say it, and I pray the Holy Ghost is adding meaning to my otherwise weak words. We're all the prodigal. That's all there is. And Jesus is a perfect older brother who perfectly reflects the Father's love. If we have that kind of faith in him, then how can we not help but come to ourselves and then come unto Christ? How can we help not repenting? Do you understand the beauty of this parable? It's one of my absolute favorites for a reason. In fact, for many reasons. Let me give you one more. I have talked repeatedly about the stages of faith being reducible down to creation, fall, atonement. And that creation is, oh, it's unsullied, but it's a little naive. That fall is messy, but you've learned a lot. And that atonement, ah, that's where it all comes together. And atonement, having, from its vantage point, can look back and see both creation and fall and look upon both with compassion with mercy for their weaknesses, because both sides, both stages have a weak side, but also gratitude for their strengths, since both preliminary stages have some positives as well. Those in the atonement stage are more loving to those in both the previous stages, though those in those two stages can't seem to get along with each other very well. Those in creation look down at those in fall and say, where's your faith? And those in fall look back at those in creation and say, where's your brain? And they can't get along very well. Those in atonement get along with everybody. And do you see why I'm bringing this up again as we finish our study of the prodigal son? Because in the parable, all three stages are represented. The older brother is still a stage one. At least the natural man older brother that we see. Not, not Jesus. <laughs> yeah, he's atonement personified. 
But in the story, he's the one that's judgmental. He's the one that's never strayed. I've never left Eden. I don't know what's out there in, in Babylon, and I would never go. But with that, there comes a certain judgmentalness and rigidity that makes it really hard for prodigals to come home. Meanwhile, the prodigal son himself is in the fall. His journey out to the far country and his time spent there are, are all the negative aspects of the fall. But coming to himself and realizing in ways he never had before just how desperately he needed the father, just how devoid of inheritance he was without all that the father hath, just how much he needed family and friends to provide for him in ways that Babylon refused to. That's the positive side of the fall. That's the coming to yourself. You see, that coming to yourself occurs within the fall, and it's what drives you to progress onward toward atonement. But who's already there? The father in the story. The father in the story is already at the atonement stage. Why do you think he sees both sons back on the trail wherever they happen to be? Why he's trying to help lift the prodigal up to the ascent of the atonement, real forgiveness, but also trying to help the son back in the creation to overcome his judgmentalness towards his brother. You've got some growing up to do too. You don't have to pass through the fall the way your brother did. Please don't. Okay, Your fall will be different. Your, well, yours will be a fall from self-righteousness, from judgmentalness, from self-assuredness. That's a good fall if I ever, a fortunate fall if I ever thought one. But come, you can come too. Ultimately, we want everybody here at the feast. To me, it's just amazing to, to ponder what any prodigal is up against. Because if what they're perceiving is an older brother like this one, then they won't come home. They'd rather stay in Babylon with the swine. They don't feed me much, but at least they're non-judgmental. If, on the other hand, there were more fathers within our faith, in that atonement stage, with openness and love and an ability to prove contraries and neither condone sin but n nor condemn sinners, of just go and sin no more, come home, let's have the fatted calf. I do worry what's taking so long for prodigals to return, it might be their fear of older brothers without enough reassurance that the church is filled with fathers and mothers ready to welcome them home. I am so grateful for the one telling the story and a perfect older brother who perfectly represents his perfect parents in heaven running out to meet us, ready to bring us home. In a way, I wish we could finish the lesson right there, right at the end of chapter 15. But we had our work cut out for us this week. And we still have Luke 16 and 17 and John 11. This is, this is a marathon. Are you still running? 
This second half, though, contains some additional, an additional parable, really important to understand, some real stories, and then a grand finale like, like you wouldn't believe, but like we better believe, <laughs> because that's, that's what we're all holding out hope for. So turn the page, look at Luke chapter 16, and let's meet another villain, okay? This one is the parable of the unjust steward, and it's one of the hardest parables in the whole book to understand. Starting in verse 1, Jesus said also unto his disciples, so these are would-be followers, right? There was a certain rich man, we already met a rich fool before, well, we're going to see if this one's foolish or not. Uh, spoiler alert, he's not foolish, but his servant is. There was a certain rich man which had a steward. And remember, a steward is someone that basically has, oh, power of attorney. Someone that can do in the, in, the, in the boss's name, in the master's name, what he thinks the master would do. At least he better be doing that because he's got the authority to do it. Now this steward, the same was accused unto him, unto the rich man, that he had wasted his goods. Like this was not the guy you want to trust with your wealth. It's gone. I mean, forget prodigal son. You had a prodigal steward. And so what does the rich man do? Well, he called him. He said unto him, how is it that I hear this of thee? Give an account of thy stewardship, for thou mayest be no longer steward. Now, I love the fact that this rich man is not jumping to a conclusion. He hears the accusation, but then he confronts the steward himself. Give an account. You are accountable after, after all. So now come tell me, because if the news is true, then I have no choice but to fire you. Thou mayest no longer be steward. If I can't trust you with that, that you're going to be rich toward God, if I can't trust that you're going to unkink the hose, then I'm going to stop sending water through. If I can't trust you to do with my, the riches of my grace what I would do, this is father, with the, the father of the prodigal with the older prodigal. It's all yours now, son. And when I really do die, what will you do with the other half of that double portion? Will you provide for the others, including your little brother? Well, what are we going to do? In our case, we are all stewards. We are put in responsibility for one another in our callings, in our opportunities to serve. We are given authority from the Father to try to do His work. What kind of a steward are we? Huh. We saw someone rich that was foolish. How about this steward? Are we the foolish one? Will God be grateful He hired us or look for a way to fire us? Well, verse 3 and 4. Then the steward said within himself, and thankfully he doesn't say soul <laughs> like the rich fool, but he's talking to himself. He's thinking within himself, oh, what am I going to do? What shall I do? For my Lord taketh away from me the stewardship. So even though the master didn't pass judgment or jump to conclusions, the steward already has because he knows I'm going to get fired. I've been a lousy steward. I know I don't deserve to keep this job. So what, what am I going to do? Now he comes up with two options and then immediately cancels them out. First, I cannot dig, which tells you something about him. He's too lazy to work. Like, what, menial, manual labor? Are you kidding me? Never. Second option, uh, to beg. Uh, no, I am ashamed. I can never do that. Okay, so I'm, I'm too lazy to work. I'm too proud to beg. So what's option three? Oh, I've got it. I am resolved what to do. So I got a plan, okay? 
ah, and if I, if this works, ooh, then what will the result be? That when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. Now, what's the they and the there? We'll see in just a second. But notice what this steward is doing. He is thinking hard. He's got some issues. He was a lousy steward. He couldn't be trusted. He's lazy and prideful, probably avaricious and greedy. I mean, if you're working for a rich man and you start doing, and you got the power to do whatever you want with it, it kind of starts feeling like your money, right? And you go from stewardship to ownership, in your mind at least, and then you can do with it whatever you want. Well, that's, that's going to cost me my job. What am I going to do? But what's interesting here are some of the positives we see. I know this is weird, but look for a positive even in the negative example of this, of this steward. He is thinking ahead. He asks himself the question, what shall I do? And he starts eliminating some options. He's kind of got the list, brainstorming. Then he's eliminating an option. Now, I don't like the reasons he's eliminating them. Like, no, you can actually work. And don't think that you're too proud to beg if it comes to that. Uh, even swine husks might fill the belly for a time. Uh, but he's thinking, he's planning. In fact, he's determined to put his plan into action. I'm resolved, that's determination, what to do. I've got an idea, and I actually think this might work. He's thinking of his future. He's starting to count the cost and settle some things in his heart on what he's going to do moving forward. I'm going to change some things to provide some kind of future for myself. Well, what's he going to do? Here's the plan, verse 5 through 7. So he called every one of his Lord's debtors unto him. So that suggests what this rich man's been doing with his money, laying, laying it out for, for usury. Uh, that suggests what the steward has been up to, that he's kind of the debt collector in this story. But he calls in the debtors. And he says to the first, How much owest thou unto my Lord? Now, shouldn't the steward already know? I'm wondering, if maybe, oh, you really weren't accountable. Then again, maybe he does, but just wants to bring up the fact. Now the man, the debtor says, an hundred measures of oil. That's what I owe. And the steward says to him, okay, great. Take thy bill, sit down quickly, hurry, before I get fired and before the, the master finds out, and write 50. Uh, in other words, you don't owe, I know you owe a hundred, but let's just cook the books. Let's cross out and I'll, I'll take pennies on the dollar, okay? I'm desperate. Just pay me 50 and I'll return that back to my master. Now, okay, first debtor out of the way. Next, then said he to another, and how much owest thou? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said unto him, oh, take thy bill, write oh, four score. Okay, you look like you're a little better off than the guy that needed all the oil. So I'm going to charge 80, but you're still getting a 20% knockoff. Okay, so this, he really is the collection agency here. And he's willing to accept pennies on the dollar. Now, why? Worst case scenario, is this one last chance to spite the master? This master that sounds like he's been really good to you. He's not jumping to conclusions. He's letting it get you explain yourself. This might be a lot like the, the king in the parable of the unmerciful servant. Wait, wait, wait. You lost 10,000 talents? Whoo! Wow. Uh, I think the treasury can absorb that. 
since you're begging for forgiveness. Actually, you weren't even doing that. You were just begging for more time. There's not enough time in eternity for that. So just, we'll call it good. It sounds like the, the rich man here would probably do something similar. But this steward isn't going to ask for it. He doesn't deserve it. I would hope that he wouldn't spite him like, <laughs> let's, let's get one last punch in on my way out. And he's going to get less than he's got or less than he deserves. That's probably not what's happening. Another possibility is he trying to make himself a little money. I'll just take the 50, I'll take the 80 and run. Maybe not. Best case scenario, perhaps, this, there was, that was part of the increase. You originally owed 50, but you've had it for a long time, and ultimately now you owe 100. What are we at now? Or you owed 80, and now you had less time, or wheat doesn't have such a high interest rate, you had better credit rating, I don't know, and now you owe 100. Best case scenario, this steward is saying, I will forego, like maybe that's what his wage was. The, the, the rich man is like, oh, I need a cut, but whatever the, the interest is, that's what you can pay, you, you can have. So maybe he's saying, I don't, I'm not going to take my cut. I'm going to do the best I can. I know it's deathbed repentance, but I'll do the best that I can by my master and at least get him back what his original investment was. Sorry, no interest, but I'm not taking any of the interest myself. Okay, I'm not going to be paid. And then there's the other possibility, which probably goes along with any of the above. And that's, well, how are these creditors, or excuse me, how are these debtors going to feel? They're going to be stoked. Like, wait, wait, you're going to just write it off? Yeah. Sweet. Or you're not going to take commission? Wow. What an impressive steward you are. And inside you're like, <laughs> lucky you don't know. Lucky for me anyway. Because since I'm about to get fired... I'm going to need a new job. And maybe these guys will hire me. That's the hope here. That's the plan. Now, notice what Jesus says next. And this is where it gets really weird. Verse 8. And the Lord commended the unjust steward because he had done wisely. To which we're sitting there aghast, like jaw drop, like, wait, 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 what? He was wise? Are you kidding? He was like underhanded and lazy and prideful and deceitful and he's cheating the boss. Well, I can see where you're coming from. Uh, yeah, there's a lot better ways to be a steward. And, and I've taught you those principles too elsewhere. In fact, speaking of elsewhere, you remember when he says to the apostles, you're going to have to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves? Well, this guy, this steward is not harmless as doves. But he is wise as a serpent. I mean, he's kind of slithery and sneaky serpent-like, but eh, at least he was wise. <laughs> Again, this is where, I'll ask my, where I asked my seminary students, so is there anything, any redeeming features about Jafar or Ursula or Scar or <laughs> the Sheriff of Nottingham or whoever your favorite Disney villain happens to be? And creatively, they could usually think of something. Well, Jesus is thinking of something. He's done wisely, although it was wise in a worldly, self-serving kind of way. But as the Lord explains it, for the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. Now, wait, what? He's comparing the children of darkness, children of the world, 
And that's what this unwise or unjust, he was wise, this unjust steward was. He's a child of the world. But you disciples, you, you claim to be the children of light. But what I worry about, well, let's, let's go back to that phrase. Wise as serpents, harmless as doves. This guy was wise as a serpent, but not harmless as a dove. I'm worried about you guys equally, but oppositely. That you are harmless as doves. Good. Hold on to that. But are you not wise as serpents at all? Do you not think wisdom is required of you? You've got all the faith, so why would I need any works? I'm going to have treasures in heaven, so why try hard at all on earth? You see the danger of uncoupling the contrary and falling out of the Goldilocks zone in either direction? The unjust steward fell out on one side, but you children of light are falling out in the other. And yeah, maybe it's better, but it's still not best. How do we learn good lessons from this not-so-good example and be more like him in to use his means for our ends? a better, more noble end. Often when I meet with young adults and they're talking about marriage, I've sometimes said to them, you know, you're going to have to work like an atheist and pray like a saint. And the idea there is study it out in your mind and pay the price and figure things out and think really hard and weigh the options and is this the right person to marry? Don't just turn to the Lord and pray and say, tell me if she's the one or if this is the Mr. Right. No, you... That was all faith with no works. That was all inspiration with no agency. And agency and inspiration is a really important contrary to proof, too. Uh, So, as I've told them, atheists do get married, too. They meet other atheists and get married and raise cute little atheists together. I don't know. They never prayed, though, because they didn't know there was anyone worth praying to. We have the opposite problem. If all we do is pray and never get around to work, Now, don't stop after working like an atheist. (laughs) Know that you can pray like a saint, and you should. Couple your agency with inspiration, but please use your agency. Please plan ahead. Please be wise. Please be determined. Please ask yourself the question, what shall I do? Please brainstorm and eliminate possibilities that won't work, and then be resolved about a plan that you are then going to put into action. Think about a future and prepare for it. I worry about you righteous but naive disciples that don't think you need to do anything because it's all good. When I said take no thought, I didn't mean take no thought. I mean, <laughs> you, I, we need some Martha, some, some Martha light anxiety. Remember Jacob's words in Jacob chapter 1, because of faith and great anxiety. Ah, that combination is what inspired us to know what to do. The faith, I knew God would do his part. The anxiety, I knew I needed to do mine. There's Mary and Martha together, okay? There's both sides. This unjust steward is introducing the children of light, the stewards of the light of the world himself, You need to be up and doing, okay? Work a little harder. Magnify your calling, okay? And then the Lord says this, verse 9 and 10, 
And I say unto you, make to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when ye fail, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. That's just as weird as, the, as what he said before. But again, we're trying to think, learn good examples from a bad example. What can you take from this? He's making friends of the mammon of unrighteousness. He's making connections that they will probably receive them in, hey, you can work for me. I saw what you did there. Uh, with, will, are you doing such? Are you, even in your temporal affairs, are you, are you acting in such a way that God can trust you with spiritual affairs? After all, he says, he that is faithful in that which is least, and that's just that worldly drop in the worldly bucket, Chances are he'll be faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. And that's why I fired him after all. I'm not going to trust him with the heavenly riches. But hmm, good on you as far as what you do to get some kind of temporal future in place. He didn't have much faith in a permanent eternal future with this rich man. But for the future he could envision, he, he at least planned for it. Verse 11, Jesus then says, If therefore ye have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? If ye have not been faithful in that which is another man's, the steward that is, you're not owner, who shall give you that which is your own? Because someday I want you to be more than steward. Someday I want you to run your own business. No servant can serve two masters, he says. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. And we know that well from the Sermon on the Mount. This is Luke's version of it. But he couches it, or Jesus is simply repeating what he taught in a different context. He couch, it's couched here, this context, in the parable of the unjust steward, which admittedly is as hard to understand as any in the book. But again, think about what he's saying. If you're, gonna, if you're the type that cheats at Monopoly, looking at you, whoever does that, <laughs> then why would I trust you with, when it's not Monopoly money, when it's the real riches of God's grace? If you can't magnify earthly callings, why, why do you think you're just going to change all of a sudden when you're given a heavenly one? As my coach always used to tell us, you end up playing the way you practice. So practice hard so you're ready when it's time to play hard too. Now the best explanation I've ever heard of this parable comes from Jesus the Christ from Elder Talmadge. And that's my go-to quote if I'm really trying to explain to people why, what Jesus is commending the wisdom of this unjust steward. How does that work? And this is how Elder Talmadge answered that. Our Lord's purpose was to show the contrast between the care, thoughtfulness, and devotion of men engaged in the money-making affairs of earth and the half-hearted ways of many who are professedly striving after spiritual riches. You get a sense of the difference between those two? I mean, people that work their tails off to get rich in this life, but won't lift a finger to obtain the riches of heaven. Elder Talmadge goes on, worldly-minded men do not neglect provision for their future years. I mean, that's all they're focused on, right? Often they are sinfully eager to amass plenty, while the children of light, or those who believe spiritual wealth to be above all earthly possessions, they're less energetic, prudent, or wise. 
Again, that's the harmless as doves without being wise as serpents. That's having faith, but not having any anxiety. All faith, no works. There's a problem there. So Elder Talmadge explains, it was not the steward's dishonesty that was extolled. Please keep that clear. Like, hey, go, go do that and ream your master. That's fine. No, 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 no. Not the dishonesty. But his prudence and foresight were commended. So take a lesson from even the dishonest and the evil. If they are so prudent as to provide for the only future they think of, then how much more should you, who believe in an eternal future, provide therefore? Emulate the unjust steward and the lovers of mammon, not in their dishonesty, cupidity, and miserly hoarding of the wealth that is at best but transitory, but do emulate them in their zeal, forethought, and provision for the future. Ah, thank you, Elder Talmadge. <laughs> that time spent in the Salt Lake Temple writing that book was time well spent. Even just to understand that one parable. That's, I'm grateful for that insight. If other people, I mean, this is the rich fool. Are there things you can learn from him? And things you definitely shouldn't. Same with the unjust steward. And then, story over, did that work? Did it get past your defenses? <laughs> or are you still confused or feeling innocent? Either way, let me do a little more explaining. Verse 14, evidently they, they're starting to get it. The Pharisees also, who were covetous, so they're just like the unjust steward, they're just like the rich fool, they're like so many others that are just wanting things. Those who were covetous heard all these things and they derided him. So, yeah, I think they got it. Wait a minute, are you talking about us? Oh, well, if the shoe fits, wear it. Well, they deride him. And Jesus says in response, Ye are they which justify yourselves before men. You can always look for loopholes to get away from, and, and oh, that you, you're wise as serpents too, right? Avoiding any kind of condemnation. You'll rationalize and justify anything. But God knoweth your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. How's that for seeing past your mask of hypocrisy? Shining the light in your dark corners. He knows exactly what you think. You think you're better than everyone else. You care more about what people think of you than what God knows about you. No wonder you're not changing and coming unto Christ. Well, he then says this to them in verse 16 through 18. The law and the prophets were until John Remember they talked about that before, law and prophets, and hey, we, we got them, we don't need you. And he's like, oh, they are they which testify of me, right? But here he says to them, the law and the prophets were until John, up till John the Baptist, right? New dispensation begins. But since that time, the kingdom of God is preached, and every man presseth into it. All these crowds that are trampling on each other just to get to me. This is the passing of the old covenant to the new. The kingdom set up by John and Jesus is spreading forth. Allegiances, loyalties are changing. And then he says, It is easier for heaven and earth to pass than one tittle of the law to fail. You see, Jesus was fulfilling the law, not destroying it. And then he gives one example of that. Whosoever putteth away his wife and marrieth another committeth adultery. And whosoever marrieth her that is put away from her husband committeth adultery. How's that for raising the bar in this new dispensation? Now, okay, that sort of makes sense, but it's, 
it seemed a little stream of consciousness. Like you jumped from law and the prophets and then like the kingdoms here and then it's not going to fail. But then like adultery, where's that coming from? That seemed kind of out of the blue with divorce and stuff. Well, thankfully, it must have confused Joseph Smith as well because he paused there long enough to ask the Lord, is this accurate? Anything I need to change here by revelation? And sure enough, there was. So notice the Joseph Smith translation of Luke 16, starting in verse 16. And this whole verse is, is revealed by inspiration. And they said unto him, we have the law and the prophets. So that's not Jesus saying it to them like, oh, that's what you've got till the, no, that, they're claiming this. This is all we got, okay? We have the law and the prophets. But as for this man, we will not receive him to be our ruler, for he maketh himself to be a judge over us. Sounds actually a lot like what Laman and Lemuel said to Nephi. You want to be, you're trying to make yourself a ruler and a judge. You think you're better than us. You think you're smarter than us. You think you can tell us what to do and, and pass judgment upon us. Well, forget the whole thing. And what does Jesus say in response? Then said Jesus unto them, the law and the prophets testify of me. It's like the third time he's been saying that. You keep claiming scripture, but you don't know what it's for. It's an arrow, not the final destination. It testifies of me. Yea, and all the prophets who have written, even until John, have foretold of these days. Since that time, the kingdom of God is preached, and every man who seeketh truth presseth into it. See how those additional phrases are being woven into what we have in the King James text? It's not just that everybody's pressing into the kingdom. It's that truth seekers are. They are coming. Does that describe you? Scribes and Pharisees, are you seekers of truth? Or do you think you already have all the truth you could ever need in your precious law and prophets? He goes on, And why teach ye the law, and deny that which is written, and condemn him whom the Father hath sent to fulfill the law, that ye might all be redeemed? <laughs> why would you do that? He says, O oh, fools! And this is not the rich fool, but Rather, fools who think they have the riches of Scripture when they don't understand what the Scriptures are, are saying to them. So, O oh, fools, for you have said in your hearts, there is no God. Oh, wow. So this is, the cracks in the foundation go way deeper than surface Scripture level. It's all the way down to God himself. You don't think there is one. At least you act in such a way as if there were no God watching you. He goes on, you pervert the right way. And the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence of you. You're the enemy. You're doing damage to the kingdom I'm setting up. You persecute the meek. Notice what you did to John the Baptist. And in your violence, you seek to destroy the kingdom. And you take the children of the kingdom by force. Woe unto you, ye adulterers. Ooh, that's where we make that shift to the comment about adultery. He's accusing them of that, whether literally or sign seekers as an adulterous generation. Either way, he goes on in the JST, we're now in verse 22, they reviled him again, being angry for the saying that they were adulterers. It's like, oh, those are, that either hits too close to home or that's just fighting words, but no, they're mad, they're reviling. But he continued saying, and then that's that part about if you get divorced just to be able to marry someone else, then yes, that is adultery. And then he concludes with this from the JST. Verily I say unto you, I will liken you unto the rich man. And then he tells another story. A lot of stories today. A lot of parables. 
And like the parable of the rich fool, as he's pushing back against covetousness, he's got another parable about another rich fool. And then this time he's pushing back against pride, against a sense of self-sufficiency, like, oh, I'm better. I've got everything I need. I've got the law and the prophets. <laughs> Why would I need some pseudo-savior coming around saying he's the son of God? Well, here's the story then. And the, the parable is called the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. It's also called sometimes the parable of Lazarus and the dives, which never made sense to me until I learned that dives is a Latin word for rich man. So when it's the parable of the rich man and Lazarus or parable of Lazarus and the dives, it's the same thing. Dives, sometimes, some people, uh, some traditions even call the, they give the rich man the name dives. They just call him that. And so they just call Lazarus and dives. We're hanging out one day. This is a story about the two of them. Okay? Now, that's not his name. That would be a title only. But an honorific one, like he's the rich man. Look at him. Well, everyone was. So was Jesus. He just saw a few different things. So notice the story unfold in verse 19. There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen. And purple was so hard to come by, like came from like the shells of some mollusk on the Mediterranean. No wonder purple was synonymous with royalty. So this isn't just any rich man. This is someone as rich as a king. He's clothed in purple. He's wearing fine linen. Fine linen actually was something that was used for the priests. Does this guy think he's a king? Think he's a priest when really he's neither one, but he, he's full of himself. He acts like it. Oh, sounds a little like the Pharisees. Anyway, he fared sumptuously every day. No swine husks for him, right? He's, he's eating high on the hog. But that's not the case with the other star of this show. So, turn the spotlight. There was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate. Was laid. Sounds like someone else had to pick him up and lower him there. Couldn't provide for himself. That's how lowly this man was. What a beggar. He's at the gate. And at his gate. So the rich man's gate. Like, ah, oh, yeah. Can we, can we sweep the, the front porch? We've got to get rid of this guy. But I don't even know if anybody wants to touch him from among the rich man's servants. Because listen to this. He was full of sores. Mm, is this Lazarus a leper? What's wrong with him? Some issue of blood, something nasty. I, 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 again, more, all the more reason to get rid of him. Now, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table, moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. That's the only soothing he ever gets. There's no good Samaritan to pour in oil or wine. Just dogs. Dogs that might be quicker at eating the crumbs from the rich man's table. Sound like someone else we met recently? In a way, this beggar, Lazarus, is the male equivalent of the Canaanite woman, the Syrophoenician. And all of that talk about dogs and crumbs from a master's table. Well, the Lord treated her far better than a dog and gave her much more than a crumb. But that was only after treating her the way that she probably expected to be treated. Only after treating her the way that Lazarus was treated by the rich man. 
Only after establishing the norm could Jesus make himself the exception to the norm and rise so far above that in terms of his generosity and his compassion and his looking past differences. So what do we see here? Speaking of differences, go to verse 22. And it came to pass that the beggar died. And go figure, I mean, he was so close to it, it seemed, just feeding on crumbs, just begging for any kind of sustenance, full of sores with no one to help him. Of course he died. But now notice who's carrying him now. If it was kind, well-meaning friends that carried him to the rich man's gate, hoping for some kind of handout, who's carrying him now that the beggar has died? He was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. Oh, and you thought the rich man's gate was a nice place to be. No, the bosom of Abraham. By the way, I love that that's the depiction of heaven because it's relational and it's intimate and it's loving. That's what heaven is. It's Abraham's bosom. Meanwhile, the rich man, he also died. We don't know why. Maybe he was faring too sumptuously every day, clogged his arteries, right? Uh, King to the hose, he wasn't letting it spread to anyone else. He died just as quickly as the rich fool, right? That, that night it was required of him. I don't know if, he, if this rich man was in the middle of uh, tearing down barns and building greater, but he's dead all, all the same, and he was buried. Now, if Lazarus is in Abraham's bosom, where is the rich man? Certainly someone even higher than that, right? If, if Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, then Melchizedek maybe was higher. Maybe this rich man, yeah, this probably, rich man probably was like, oh, Abraham, please. Uh, I'll, I'll go to Melchizedek. In fact, maybe Melchizedek would want to come to me. Well, not quite. In hell, he lift up his eyes, being in torments. Yikes. And yet, when he lifted up his eyes, what did he see? He seeth Abraham afar off. That's how far he's fallen himself. But he also sees Lazarus in his bosom. Wait, wait, serious? No. That's, <laughs> must be a lookalike. Must be a stunt double. I mean, there's no way Lazarus is there. At least the rich man could never conceive of that. Now, notice the differences. The Lord is doing an amazing job of juxtaposition, which is putting two things side by side to bring out the differences more clearly. For example, here's one difference. Uh, how did they eat? You've got sumptuous fare versus crumbs. You have purple and fine linen versus dogs licking sores. You have a rich man versus a beggar. Now, who's above and who's below? Well, obviously the rich man is. But wait, 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 that was only describing things before the moment of death and judgment. Hmm. Because on the next side of it, what happens? Complete role reversal, just like Luke loves to portray, right? And in the afterlife, what happens now? Well, first of all, how did it describe the rich man's death? Usually the rich are the ones that get the 21-gun salutes, right? They're the ones that get the mausoleum. At the, I mean, what's the size of your, of your headstone? I mean, poor Lazarus, stick him in, a, in a, an unmarked grave. But no, it's the, the rich man that seems to get an unmarked grave. All it says is that he died and was buried. At least he got a burial, but they just throw him in the ground? I, and then where does he go? He goes to hell. And yet, where does 
Lazarus go? He's carried by the angels. How's that for pallbearers? And brought into the bosom of Father Abraham himself? Wow, no sores to keep him at bay. Or how about even this detail? What's the rich man's name? That's why I don't like the thought of calling him Dives. You see, he doesn't get a name. And that's part of the irony that Jesus intended. You see, in life, it's the beggars nobody knows what to call. How many homeless people do you know by name? Well, Jesus knows them all. Every last one. Then again, how many rich people can you name? It's a long list. But for Jesus, that's just the drop. What is property unto me? Who cares? Now, he doesn't even deserve a name. You can call him whatever you want. Dives? Well, he's diving down. (laughs) Forget rich man. He's in hell in torment. Interesting to see these two side by side. Then verse 24. The plot thickens. This man, suffering, he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. But notice the form the mercy was to take, as far as the rich man was concerned. Send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. Notice he didn't ask for deliverance from hell, which suggests he probably knew he deserved it. I am where I belong. But he is seeking relief, at least. Not deliverance, but relief. I'm tormented in flame here. I could use a little water. Even Compare the drops to the crumbs. Would he allow his crumbs to fall to Lazarus? Then Lazarus at least owes me some crumbs of water, some drops to cool my tongue. So yeah, send, send, Abra- send Lazarus down my way. By the way, do you sense that the rich man is still objectifying Lazarus? And perceives him as someone beneath him? Even though the tables have already turned? He's, he's talk- he doesn't talk to Lazarus. No, he talks to Abraham. We're equals, right? But send your inferior and mine. Send Lazarus as a servant. Because that's, that's probably the only reason he's there. You probably just brought him up there to do your dirty work. Uh, And maybe it was just a one-way delivery where he belongs in hell, infinitely below me. But can he at least bring a few drops of water down and then give them to me rather than to save them for himself? Interesting issues. Well, what's Abraham's response? But Abraham said, son, which is interesting, he'd still see him as that. Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. You see how those role reversals work? Oh, son, I only had one mansion to give, and in your case, you took it in life. I don't have one for you in death. Lazarus didn't get one in life, but he lived in such a way that I could give him one in this life. He chose wisely. He put his eggs in the resurrection's basket, and they're beginning to hatch, much to his glory. Those are things worth pondering. Where do I want to be praised? And by whom? 
by the secular synagogue here or by the angels in heaven? Where do I want to rest? Take my ease here or take my ease there? Do I want things now? Do I want things later? Am I more interested in God or more interested in mammon? Those are choices, whether or not we think about the choices, we make them every day. So we better settle some things in our heart, okay? Now, he adds one other detail, too, to say there's also some logistical reasons that we can't just do that. Not only the role reversal, but verse 26, beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. There seems to be a barrier here between paradise and prison. Even if we could come down, and you know what? Lazarus is the type that probably would do just that. It's like, oh, I know what it's like to need relief. Even the dogs licking my sores was better than nothing. And so even some drops of water might help a little. Father, can I go and help someone? But no, there's a gulf there. We can't go your way. You can't come our way. I'm sorry. I mean, theologically, that's true until the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. It was only with his parting of the veil, his tearing it apart, that he could then go to the spirit world and begin tearing apart the separation, the gulf between paradise and prison. Only then, as he organizes the forces of the righteous, could then they go down to those in prison to preach deliverance to the captives? No, far more than water to parch their tongue. You want to come back with me? You can, if you accept the Savior and accept the ordinances by proxy that will be performed for you. But we're not there yet. Jesus hasn't died. He hasn't been resurrected. There's still a gulf. There's, there's still a barrier. So there's not much we can do. At which point the rich man comes up with another plan. Eh, maybe he was like the, the unjust steward. He's always thinking of something. So verse 27 and 8, here's his plan. Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, still won't talk to Lazarus, but Father, Abraham, that thou wouldst send him. I'm not even going to mention his name again, but he's still servitude, right? That's what he's there for. Send him to my father's house. If there's a gulf between heaven and hell, surely there's not a gulf between heaven and earth, right? So can you still send Lazarus, this servant of yours, and servant of mine, uh, to my father's house? For I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. You know, I am grateful that he's at least finally thinking of somebody else. Now granted, it's only his own immediate family, probably oh, fellow rich people clothed in purple and fine linen of their own. But, you know, sometimes I fared sumptuously at their house, and sometimes they fared sumptuously at mine. And so, you know, we got along great. Uh, and I certainly would not, would not want them to have to go through everything I'm going through. So send, you know, chop, chop, send uh, the butler down, send your servant boy, your messenger, with this kind of message. But notice 29 and 30. Abraham saith unto him, Oh, no, they have Moses and the prophets. In fact, I wonder if the fact that this rich man has five brethren, if that's supposed to be some kind of nod to the five books of Moses. I mean, they've got, they've got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. 
In fact, they have all these other prophets to boot. So let them hear them. Isn't that what the scribes and Pharisees have always said is sufficient for salvation? I mean, surely Moses and the prophets are enough. Oh, and he said, this rich man, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, ah, yeah, that's what it's going to take, then they will repent. Notice, he knows they need to repent, just like he did. They just need a more obvious sign that repentance is required. They need a, more, a louder alarm clock. Moses, ah, prophets, yeah, but they're all dead. And sadly, sometimes we leave their words as dead on the page, too. We need something more alive. In fact, so miraculous, how's this for sign-seeking? Send someone like Lazarus back from the dead. And that will wake them up to the reality of an afterlife <laughs> and something that we better be preparing for, okay? That we got, we, we've got some eggs to put in that basket, too. Now, verse 31, the Lord ends this parable and ends this chapter. He said unto them, No, no, if they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Yes, signs, they might convince, but they don't convert. Scripture, devoid of spirit, is just dead Moses and prophets. Un, uh, insufficient to wake you up to your need to change. Because you've had Moses and the prophets this whole time, and you're still in need of major repentance. And yet you claim, you scribes and Pharisees, you who are focused on every jot and tittle of the written word, if the word was as quick and powerful as you say it is, devoid the spirit that you're not worthy to feel as you study it, now, if, if the Spirit were enough, excuse me, if the Scriptures were enough, you wouldn't be this way. But since you claim Scripture as all-sufficient, then the Scriptures is all you'll get. I'm not going to give you the word of life. You haven't recognized the word made flesh. You're not, you're not open to what I'm offering. And even if I brought someone back to life, that wouldn't change you. In fact, now do you know why I picked that name for the beggar? Even if a Lazarus came back from the dead, that's not going to change your heart. Sign-seeking doesn't do a thing. How's that for preview of John chapter 11? No, that's coming up, but we still have Luke 17 to get to, get through to, till we get there, okay? Luke 17 is awesome. I love this one. It doesn't have the famous parables like we've been seeing so far this week, but it has some stories that are really famous. A verse that's really famous, though we seem to butcher it by taking it out of context. Uh, I love Luke 17. So let's begin in verse 1 and see what the Lord has to teach us. Then said he unto the disciples, it is impossible, but that offenses will come. I mean, you're human after all, so there's no avoiding those kinds of offenses. But woe unto him through whom they come. It were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and he cast into the sea, than that he should offend one of these little ones. 
Now, we saw that already in the Matthew and Mark version, and so I guess we can leave it there. But notice what the Lord adds right on the heels here in Luke. He says, take heed to yourselves. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. There's justice speaking. And if he repent, forgive him. There's mercy speaking. This goes back to what we were talking about, plucking out versus plucking out. Before you throw them overboard, try to... <laughs> Try to bring them back into the boat. Before you pluck out your eye, your offensive eye, and cast it from thee, try to pluck out of danger and out of their own self-absorption the people that you're trying to save. Now, how do you do that? Well, you balance justice and mercy. You cry repentance. That's justice. You've got to change. You're, you're the one sinking. You've got to get in the boat. But then you also preach mercy and forgiveness, which is extending the hand to lift them into the boat, okay? So I love this addition. He puts it in context, not of condemnation, but of crying repentance and then forgiving. See, the Luke version is much more welcoming and inclusive than what we saw in Matthew and Mark, right? But then notice what he says right on the heels of it. And now that he's shifted things from, yeah, people are going to make mistakes and we need to call them on it so they can know what to change, Otherwise, they'll be blind to their blind spots. But we also need to be forgiving when they make those changes, right? Justice and mercy combined. Prove the contraries. Ask the woman taken in adultery. Then, verse 4 and 5, And if he trespass against thee seven times in a day, and yes, I know that sounds like a lot, but even if he trespasses seven times in the same day, and seven times in a day turn again to thee, saying, I repent, then what are you supposed to do? Thou shalt forgive him. Now, right there, I'd be, again, jaw dropped. We saw before when Peter's like, hey, how many times do I have to forgive? Seven? I mean, I'm going way above and beyond the four minimum, right? And the Lord's like, <laughs> close. How about seven times 70? Now, this one's different. This time, there's repentance. And every time they repent, I'm supposed to forgive. But was it real repentance if they just blow it the same day repeatedly? I mean, talk about no no permanent change. This, this seems a little mm, forgetful on their part that they did. Oh, sorry, I did it again. I, I, feel, I feel horrible. I feel horrible. Will you, I'm, I'm sorry. I'll never have, I, I promise. This is the only time I'm going to be so serious and careful. It, it, it's okay. It, it's fine. It's fine. And then they do it again. You're like, mm, mm. Whew, count to 10. It's okay. Can we just, why don't you go your way, I'll go mine, and we don't have to worry about it. No, I just want to be with, I, I'll, be, I'll be careful. Seven times in a day would be really intense, okay? No wonder this next verse follows. And the apostles said unto the Lord, increase our faith. Oh, that is so beautiful. We often summarize that verse and simply say, Lord, increase our faith. Uh, that's not an exact quote because the Lord is who they're speaking to. It's not a word they actually say. What they said to the Lord was, increase our faith. Now, I said that this chapter had a verse that we take out of context, and that's the one. And it's okay that we do because it's a beautiful phrase. Okay, Increase our faith. Those three words belong in every talk on faith in some ways because that's what we're asking for. And only the Lord can do it. Faith in him usually comes, well, as faith from him. 
And as he introduces himself to us, we come to know him better. And that relationship strengthens to the point that the Lord has increased our faith in him. It's beautiful. So yeah, this is a great verse on faith. If you looked up faith in the topical guide, I bet this verse would be in there. And though I haven't checked, if you looked up forgiveness in the topical guide, I'm not sure that it would. I mean, the previous verse definitely would, right? About if they repent seven times in a single day, forgive them every single time. But that's the power. This is a, this is a passage about forgiveness. It's not primarily a passage about faith. It only becomes a passage about faith once the apostles know just how serious the Lord is about forgiveness. Now, think about that. Let it click. There's something about forgiveness that requires faith. And the greater the forgiveness, the greater faith is required of us to be able to, to forgive at that level. I think sometimes that we, what keeps us from forgiving... Sometimes it's our weakness. Sometimes we're just jerks. We're vengeful. We're angry. Offenses came and we're mad at woe unto the one that, that, through whom they came. And I'm ready to <laughs> grab my own millstone and throw it around their neck. Sometimes it's our weakness. But sometimes it's our strength that makes it hard to forgive. Because we're worried that they're not going to get the justice that they deserve. That we're not going to get the justice we deserve. But again, have faith in Christ. He'll take care of it. This is section 80, uh, 64 of the Doctrine and Covenants. He ought to say within your heart, Let God judge between me and thee, and reward thee according to thy deeds. And if thy deeds deserve justice, I'm going to trust God will give it to you. If your deeds against me, if I deserve mercy, then God will give that to me too. He'll take care of the whole thing. So I can leave it in his capable hands. He's the ruler. He's the judge. I am neither. But, but to trust that that will happen? When I would prefer to see earthly vengeance? Mm. Lord, increase our faith. I'm going to need to trust you a lot more than I already do. To trust that through thy atoning grace, you can heal my wounded heart. That you can suck out the poison and help me be freed of that bitterness. Because maybe I'm the one sinking under the weight of a millstone of anger and judgment. Righteous indignation, all justified, but to let it go so I can rise back to the surface, walk on the water with Jesus. Man, that's going to take faith. Way more than I already have. That's what the apostles are praying for. This is what we should all pray for, too. But here's what I find really fascinating. Because then Jesus goes on with some other things. And because, unfortunately, we like to cherry-pick Scripture, and we'll pick a passage and throw it into a talk on that one subject, and we don't tend to keep things in context. We don't try to read, to look at flow and see, is Jesus still in the same rhetorical situation? Is he still trying to accomplish the same goal with the same audience? What's he doing here? Because this is the part that blows me away in the next few verses. He's still talking about forgiveness, not just faith. And so with forgiveness in the back of your mind, read verse 6, where the Lord said, 
If ye had faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye might say unto this sycamine tree, Be thou plucked up by the root, and be thou planted in the sea, and it should obey you. You see, we get tricked there into thinking he's still only talking about faith because faith appears in that verse. Come on, Peter and James and John and the rest of you. If you had enough faith, not only could you move mountains, you could uproot sycamore trees, deeply rooted, just yank it up and toss it away like, wow. I mean, those are immovable objects, trees and mountains. That's a lot of, that's a lot of faith I'm going to need. Yeah, it is. But what were we talking about? that made you realize how much faith you needed? Oh yeah, we were talking about forgiveness. Wait, so verse 6 is a verse about forgiveness? Yeah, don't look at the top of the guide, but it should be there. Oh, so what kind of sycamine tree are you thinking of? These offenses that come, has hurt ever become so deeply rooted within you that it doesn't feel like you'll ever be able to forgive someone. Maybe it's even, I'll never be able to forgive myself. It's not a tree of life inside, it's a tree of death, and it is spreading its branches and, and deepening its roots, and there's no way I'm going to be able to get over it. Well, pray that the Lord will increase your faith. And as you come unto him with greater faith in his justice for others, his mercy to you, his grace that smooths everything out, the wine and oil that he pours into every wound until you're completely healed, with that much faith, you can say to a tree, you can pluck it out. You can cast that tree of offense into an ocean of forgiveness and watch it sink to the bottom or float out of sight so that you never have to worry about it again. That's how much faith is required, but when you have it, you're completely healed. Now, if he was talking about forgiveness, with faith in verse 6. Keep your eye out for forgiveness in verse 7 and 8. It's, he's still on this subject. He says, But which of you having a servant, plowing or feeding cattle, will say unto him by and by, when he's come from the field, Oh, go and sit down to meet. I mean, would, would any of you say that to your servant? You're not going to, Oh, hey, come on in and put your feet up and let me give you a massage. It's been a long day out there on the, <laughs> at the plow, hasn't it? No, you're not going to say that. What are you going to say instead to this servant, even after a full day's labor? Will, will he not say rather unto him, Make ready wherewith I may sup, and gird thyself and serve me, till I have eaten and drunken, and afterward thou shalt eat and drink. Now, interesting here what the Lord is getting at. Seems like he has, he's totally shifted gears, and he's talking, we're like, where's this coming from? Now, he's, he's giving you another example of where forgiveness is required. Because in this case, think about how you would treat servants, people that are beneath you, people that owe you something. And so they work for you until they've worked it off. And as long as they, <laughs> they still owe you, then you can make them keep on working. And even after a full day and they come in, no, you don't roll reverse. You don't take care of them. You demand that they keep care taking care of you. 
I mean, if there's anything left over after all my needs are met, then yeah, you can meet your own. But I'm not going to meet him. I'm not going to go say, go and sit down to meet. Are you kidding me? Now, think about what this might mean as far as forgiveness is concerned. Do you let, I mean, if somebody's done something to you, that's one of the, I don't want to forgive because then uh, that's my, that's my blackmail. That's my get out of jail free card if I ever do anything to you. Because then I can say, hey, but you remember the time I forgave you? You got to forgive me or, or, yeah, I did something bad to you, but you've done tons of things bad to me. It's all about keeping score, right? And as long as I'm holding on to the scorecard, then I can stay in, in the master status. That's the interesting thing about sin against one another is it creates a, a hierarchy of master-servant kind of relationship. But forgiveness brings you back to the same level. Forgiveness, I've torn up the, the scorecard. I've, I've burned the evidence and I can't blackmail you anymore. I'm not keeping track. I forgave and I forgot. So you're no servant and you don't have to come and serve me. You don't owe me anything. But that is a hard place to, to arrive at. That's a hard place to get because, I mean, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier this week about abundance versus lack. And uh, I, there's not an abundance of grace. I need to keep score. I need to keep, stay in this master position. I, I can't afford to forgive. Yes, we can. In fact, not only should you, you must. We all must. That's what the Lord gets at in verse 9 and 10. Keep forgiveness in mind. And then read these verses in that context. Doth he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I trow not. In other words, I don't think so. So likewise ye, when ye have done all those things which are commanded you, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. Now he's kind of given a last thought on the previous verses about servitude, but then he's shifted things, and now all of a sudden, you're the servant, and you're supposed to do the master's will. And in this context, what is the master's will? That you forgive. If we don't, then we are unprofitable servants. King Benjamin picked up on that thought, right? And made that, that phrase famous. But to see forgiveness as our duty, for our sake, as well as for the other person's. But even that is a, a way to eliminate the master-servant kind of you know, hierarchy. Because instead of feeling like, oh, look at me, I'm forgiving. Even if it's not to keep score, maybe it's to keep an internal score. And like, look at how holy I am, and how righteous, and how forgiving I am. No. That just puts you on a state of moral superiority. And compared to Christ, we, ha we don't have a leg to stand on, let alone a pedestal. All we've done in forgiving others is extending Christ's forgiveness, which we needed to. So I'm, I'm not mor morally superior. We're back to the parable of the unmerciful servant it should be really easy for me to forgive your 100 pence. After all, 
the Lord forgave my 10,000 talents. And if you don't think you owe 10,000 talents, go back to chapter 15 and reread the parable of the prodigal son. Now with that, we're ready to shift gears. And in verse 11, on to a new story. Different rhetorical situation. He's no longer teaching repent, or forgiveness, verse after verse after verse. But here it came to pass as he went to Jerusalem, which means he's approaching his final days. In each, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, we're seeing him, the, the return brought up. And this is the end, okay? We are fast approaching the, the final days of Jesus on earth. As he went to Jerusalem, that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. And that's what he always did. It just didn't matter if you're an insider or an outsider, if you're Samaritan or Galilean, uh, high or low, in or out, Jesus is here for you. And as he entered into a certain village, there met him ten men that were lepers, which stood afar off. Now, you all know this story, right? Here's the ten lepers. No wonder they're standing afar off. Unclean, unclean, they're probably crying out, to warn people to stay away from them, this horribly contagious disease. But Jesus is near. What are they going to do? Do you remember the last time Jesus healed the leper? This man full of leprosy. And if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. These ten seem to have the same kind of faith. Will Jesus come and lay hands on them, touch them and say, I will be thou clean? Well, he doesn't say that. But he says the second part of what he said to this man. To the single leper that we met way back in, what, Matthew chapter 8? He healed him and then said, go and show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifice that Moses commands. In other words, we have a law in Leviticus 14 and a ritual that goes along with the cleansing of the leper. Back then, I explained the cleansing of the leper. It's my favorite Old Testament ritual. Well, one of them. Uh, and the, the birds and the clay pot and the, the, wa the water and the, the scarlet and the hyssop and the cedar and the blood and the earlobe and the big toe and the thumb and all those amazing things. If you can't remember that, go back to that story in, in Matthew 8. Or if you want the original, go back to last year's lesson on Leviticus 14. It's a doozy. Okay? But to that leper, it's you're now clean. You're healed. It's obvious to us both. But the law still says it needs to become obvious to the priest. And he'll give the, sign, the final sign-off. So go do what the law requires. Go fulfill Leviticus 14. Now, you only do that when you're clean. There's no reason to go to the priest for him to pronounce final cleansing if you're still suffering from, from leprosy. But notice here, these lepers that come, they, they're still afar off, but look at verse 13. They lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said unto them, Go show yourselves unto the priests. And it came to pass that as they went, they were cleansed. Now, what amazes me about that is what is the part that he skipped. If we're using the first leper, leper miracle, the healing, as our model, well, it's they plead for mercy. The Lord offers that mercy and heals them, and then they go show themselves to the priest. What part did Jesus skip? The healing. And he just said, oh, okay, yeah, you mercy? Yeah, go show yourself to the priest, and he'll sign off on you that you're totally clean. And I picture them going, uh, we, we skipped a step. 
we missed something uh, kind of obvious to us. Uh, I hate to suggest that you forgot something, but we're not clean. We're not better. There's no reason for us to show ourselves to the priest. Well, is there a verse of scripture that pops into your head that you could offer them? How about this one? Faith precedes the miracle. Or how about this one? You receive no witness until after the trial of your faith. Or even this one from Abinadi, speaking of things to come as though they already had come. I love that one. It's like, well, go act like you're clean. And by the time you get there, you will be. Believe that I can heal you. And by the time it's, you're in a position to prove it to the priest, you'll have that proof. You will be cleansed, healed, changed along the way as you act in faith based on my promise. I love this. Makes you wonder, is this anything like the healing of the man, uh, the blind man in stages? Where he sees a little and then he sees a lot? I wonder, did they get successively more clean as they got closer and closer to the priest? <laughs> and was the last sore finally healed as they knock on the priest's door? Is this walking into the Jordan River and the water doesn't stop flowing until your feet are wet? That there's something powerful here about acting on the promise of the miracle without having to wait until the miracle has been fully performed. Jesus is teaching something powerful here to all of us. But then something else powerful happens in the aftermath. Actually, it's not even after. <laughs> it's somewhere along, the, along the, the path. Verse 15 and 16. One of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. And of course, Luke would include that detail, right? The one who talked about good Samaritans. And this one, grateful Samaritans. Remember, Jesus was somewhere there on the borders of Samaria and Galilee. Were the other nine Jewish? It seems to suggest that if he would single out the Samaritan. It even makes me wonder, did, did the Samaritans not hold on to Leviticus 14 as strictly as the Jewish lepers do? Uh, which priest are they going to go to? Is, is this Samaritan going to go to Mount Gerizim instead of down to Jerusalem? Uh, there's some, I don't know all those, the answers to those questions. But the simple fact that this is an outsider who comes back in, who received the blessing somewhere along the way, and instead of fulfilling the commandment of the law, I mean, if he still has to do it, I'm sure he went after if it's still what's required from G by Jesus, you better believe I'm going to do it. Uh, but before, this is, remember Jesus when he'd heal on the Sabbath? And they're like, oh, let's break in the Sabbath. And he's like, come on, go back and read Hosea. That what I care about even more than sacrifice is mercy. That I would have mercy, not sacrifice. That inner attributes are far more important than mere outer actions. Now, I'm not here to destroy the law. I'm here to fulfill it. So yeah, go fulfill the law. But where are your inner attributes along the way? And if there's something worth pausing 
it's pause the outward so you can work on the inward. And then pick back up with the outward. It's still part of it. Prove those contraries. But what an amazing example of this man prioritizing gratitude, knowing that legal compliance can wait. Makes sense? Relationships over rituals. Leaving a gift at the altar. Remember this one from the Sermon on the Mount? If there's anything amiss horizontally, I know the vertical comes first, so go leave the gift there. Like, I'm coming back. I know this, this is first and foremost what has to be done. But I've got to work things out on the horizontal, or the vertical doesn't really matter. There's something missing, something amiss. So this Samaritan rushes back to Jesus and falls at his feet and expresses his heartfelt gratitude. You could end the story there, and it would be a beautiful depiction of appreciation. But notice what Jesus says to emphasize it. Verse 17 through 19. Jesus answering said, Were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? And then he answers his own question. There are not found that return to give glory to God, save this stranger. And by stranger, he does mean foreigner. This is an outsider. This is non-Jew. This is Samaritan. And he said unto him, Jesus, still speaking to the Samaritan man, Arise, go thy way. Thy faith hath made thee whole. And I would think that whole there, as opposed to healed, is at an even higher level. Your faith hath made thee whole. Inside, as well as out. So go in peace. I love the example of the ten lepers. I always have. To me, there's something powerful about showing gratitude, of doing it immediately and intensely and running back and expressing our gratitude to the source of the blessing that came. And yet, I remember once, years ago, pondering this story. I think it was around Thanksgiving. What better story to think about Thanksgiving time, right? And I was pondering this, realizing, okay, would, would I have been that leper that returned? And I was really thinking, would I be the one? Because the other nine, I'm sure they were grateful. I'm sure they were stoked, right? I mean, I'm healed, I'm clean. Maybe they thought, well, he did tell us to go to the priest first, and we're going to do that. But as soon as I'm done, I'm rushing back to, to say thanks. Maybe some did. We don't know the rest of the story. Maybe some fully intended to. Maybe some expressed all kinds of gratitude, just not to the person that gave them the gift. Many were probably grateful for, without perhaps being grateful to, because there's a difference. Samuel the Lamanite talks about this. You're grateful for your stuff. You're just not grateful to God for giving you that stuff. Interesting. Grateful for, I'm focused on my blessings, but I'm not grateful to and acknowledging the source where those blessings come from. All kinds of things to, to think about with this. But what struck me as I was pondering this, would, would I, am I the grateful type? Do I express appreciation? And I thought, yeah, I do. I can't think of a prayer where I wouldn't at least th thank God for something. And when people do nice things for me, I'm pretty sure I always express my gratitude. If I, if I haven't, I am so sorry. And for some of you amazing people that have anonymously been kind to me, please know how grateful I am. And please accept this gratitude personally to you. But it struck me when I was thinking that and beginning to pat myself on the back, thinking, yeah, I would have come back. I'm a grateful leper. 
I had this really strange impression. And the thought came to my mind, I'm sure planted by the Holy Ghost, you don't get to pick which leper you are. You're all ten. And I remember thinking, what? What kind of a weird impression is that? I'm not ten people. I'm only one, so I can only be one leper. But again, this push, think harder. Be all ten lepers and think about the story. And it struck me, yes, I'm grateful, but how grateful am I? Am I a, a one leper thanker when I should have been all ten? I've wondered at the end of a prayer, what if the Lord responded, acknowledging our gratitude, but also saying, were there not ten blessings granted? Were there not ten prayers answered? Were there not ten sins forgiven? Where then are the other nine thanks? If we're to count our blessings and name them one by one, do we thank God for all of them? Or only 10%? Maybe we're up to 50%. Maybe we're an eight-leper thanker, thanker. But are we a 10? Do we express gratitude for all that God has done for us? That's going to take some serious mindfulness and awareness to think of blessings that we may be taking for granted. Mm, well, all the better. All the better to come to see God for just how generous he is with us. I would even add to the, qual to the quantity of our gratitude, may we deepen the, the quality of it as well. The quantity is 10 for 10. The quality... Do I rush back to Jesus and fall on, if I was falling on my feet, or excuse me, falling on my knees to beg of him the blessing, then when it comes, do I fall on my knees to express my gratitude? If I fasted to ask for a blessing, do I fast to express my thanks? Does that make sense? Both quantity and quality, I know personally my gratitude can improve. It needs to. The chapter then turns to an unrelated story in verse 20. When he was demanded of the Pharisees, sound like they're, they think they're in charge, like they're calling the shots, like, get over here. Demanded of the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God should come, he answered them and said, the kingdom of God cometh not with observation. <laughs> you're not going to see it, because if you don't see it already, then you're not going to see it later. It's standing right in front of you. It should be obvious, but you're not observing very well. So, neither shall they say, lo here or lo there, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you. Now, a lot of other translations say it's among you, because the you there is plural. So, within all y'all sounds like, well, it's among you. It's in your midst. And Jesus is in your midst. His kingdom is in your midst. In fact, the JST of this passage says the kingdom of God has already come unto you. Here I am. Do you recognize me before you? Or are you just cracking whips and demanding of thing, things of me? And notice what they were demanding. They were demanding an answer to the question, when? When's the kingdom coming? These messianic hopes. And if you're the Messiah, when are you going to kick out Rome? Oh, were you not around for the bread of life discourse? I guess not. No, the kingdom's already here. Well, I don't see anything. That's the problem. 
Having eyes, they see not. Having ears, they hear not. Having hearts, they do not understand. The kingdom is standing, the king of kings is standing right before you. And the kingdom is all around you. Look at these publicans and sinners that are changing. Look at these lepers that are being healed. Look at the, the, the blind that are now seeing back at you. It's amazing what's happening. Could the kingdom be any greater than this? Well, they, they thought it was supposed to be. And they were not prepared to accept the kingdom as it stood before them. For us, I wonder too, are we just waiting? Are we demanding whens when we should be asking about hows? How can I be more engaged? How can I hasten the work so that you can bring thy kingdom? And he, I think he'd still say, well, the kingdom's with you. But I thought you were coming with the kingdom. Well, yes, it's, it's a both and. There's a Zion from below and a Zion from above, and they'll meet. There's a Zion that must be built, and then a Zion that will be brought. But you've got to do your part. So do it. And then for the rest of this chapter, he talks more about the second coming and the signs of the times and being prepared for it. All the kinds of things that we will see in Matthew chapter 24. So we're going to wait till Matthew chapter 24. Okay? And we'll bring in what we skipped from Luke 12 and what we skipped from Luke 17 when we get there. Okay? Believe me, if I taught every verse in all those chapters that we've done, this would be like a 10-hour video. And I, ain't nobody got time for that. Okay, so we're going we're gonna to pick up here and move on to John chapter 11. And John 11 is our final chapter for this week, and what a grand finale. We just talked about the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, and the reminder that if you don't have eyes to see and ears to hear what Moses and the prophets are calling you to do, then you will not change, even if a a man named Lazarus rises from the dead. So, with that in mind, let's meet Lazarus. The real one, the living one. Uh, John 11, verse 1, 2, 3. Now a certain man was sick, named Lazarus, of Bethany, the town of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Now, don't get this confused. This is not the triple N sinner that wiped the, the, that anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. This has happened to him more than once. Uh, that would be looking back in his history. This is actually looking forward because in the next chapter, John 12, John will give us the story of Mary anointing Jesus and wiping his feet with her hair. So chapter 11 and 12, right next door to each other. Uh, he's just reminding, oh yeah, I haven't told you that story, but she's the one that will, and so this is the same person, okay? Different, different from the triple end center. So do we have the right Mary in mind? Do we have the right Martha in mind? We met them a while ago with the two sisters who were sitting at the Savior's feet, and which one's the better part, and so on, okay? We're going to see them juxtaposed here again. Uh, but notice there's even a JST here that I love. It seems so minor, like why waste a revelation on this one? Why, why need inspiration to clarify this? But this is the JST of John 11 verse 2. And Mary, his sister, who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, lived with her sister Martha, in whose house her brother Lazarus was sick. Now, didn't we kind of get all that before? Well, yeah, but the clarification, yeah, this is Martha's house. 
Let's just be crystal clear. We saw that before, that it was Martha's house when Jesus and the apostles came and, and Mary stopped serving so that she could sit at his feet. Uh, no wonder Martha keeps, keeps serving. It's her house. She's the hostess. And in case you forgot, here's a revelation to Joseph Smith. Can you clarify one more time that Martha's in charge here? That this is her house? Not even Lazarus's house. Makes you wonder, is she a widow and it was her husband's house and now it's hers? Uh, was it their father's, but somehow Martha is entrusted with it more than Lazarus? I, I don't know. Okay, strange things. But Lazarus is the one who's sick. Mary and Martha are the ones that are worried about him. Now, there's one other detail here about how they share the news. This is in verse 3. Therefore his sisters, Lazarus' sisters, sent unto him, Jesus, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. And I can't think of a better way to describe someone. The one you love needs you to manifest that love, needs you to act on that love and help him. Now, the only irony there is that title doesn't narrow it down at all. It doesn't, it doesn't narrow down the field. If you went to Jesus and said, someone you love is suffering, he'd look at you going, uh, that describes everyone. Not only because everyone suffers, but because I love everyone. <laughs> and yet, in, in, for Mary and Martha's sake and for Lazarus' sake, I love the thought of, I mean, who cares about my name? Who cares who I am? It's whose I am that matters more to me. It's not about me as an individual. It's about, about me and my relationship with the Lord. So rather than, I mean, this goes back to President Nelson's talk about identities. And we have so many of them, and that's all well and good. But the ones that matter most is I'm a child of God, and I'm a child of the covenant, and I'm a disciple of Christ. I'm someone that Jesus loves, and I define myself in relationship to him. It, no wonder John includes that, because that's how John refers to himself. He never refers to himself by name in his own gospel, but he does talk about the disciple whom Jesus loved, which again does not narrow the field. But for John, as he's self-identifying, the, the best thing you can know about me is that the best person who's ever lived loved me. And I love him. I love that. Now, verse 4, when Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. And that's important to keep in mind. Sounds a lot like the man born blind back in John chapter 9. Our extremity is God's opportunity. And so Jesus, whether he's just speaking to his apostles or whatever servant was sent by Mary and Martha, it's going to be okay. Okay, this is not unto death, at least not the permanent type. <laughs> this is for the glory of God. And you want to see it? Well, hold your horses. You're going to see glory like you've never seen before. In verse 5 and 6, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, right? He loves us all. When he had heard Therefore, that he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. Now, I emphasize the word therefore to let you know that the word was not despite. It could have been when he had heard about Lazarus being sick, despite the fact that he loved them, he abode two days still. Because there, this is an odd 
statement here. This is an odd moment in the narrative. You just got a 911 call and you got to get flying. I mean, if you're up there in the north, somewhere around Samaria and Galilee, I mean, yeah, you, your face is steadfastly set to go to Jerusalem, but not yet. My hour is not yet fully come. And by the time I get to Jerusalem, it's going to be my last trip because they're not going to let me leave alive. So, yeah, we, we, we should stay, especially if his sickness is not unto death. It's just for the glory of God. Oh, he'll get better then. Awesome. Praise God for that. But that's not why he's staying. Love would suggest that he book it down to Jerusalem as quickly as possible to heal Lazarus while there's, while there's still hope. But here when it says that he abode two days still in the same place where he was, to get a 911 call and say, I'll, I'll, I'll leave in 48 hours. How's that? Oh, I would, I would fire the 911 dispatcher. I would fire, fire the ambulance driver. No, this is, this, is, this is like Jairus and his daughter. You gotta come. And it's one thing to pause the 911 long enough to heal the woman who dared, the woman with the issue of blood. But to pause just so you can kind of chill with your apostles for two more days? What are you doing? Why are you waiting? Oh, I'm glad you asked why. It's because I love them. Therefore, I'm going to stay a little longer because I love this family. I love them enough to push them into developing greater faith. I love them enough to stretch their souls almost to the breaking point, though not quite that far. I love them enough to restrain the compassion of my soul that would have me rush headlong into Jerusalem. No, I love them. And as a result, my divine restraint, as ironic as it seems, might be the greatest evidence of my love at all. Because I believe in you. I know you can grow through hardship. Verse 7 then, Then after that saith he to his disciples, Let us go into Judea again. So the two days have passed, let's go. But his disciples, who know everything I just explained about his danger, and we're not coming back from this, his disciples say unto him, Master, the Jews of late sought to stone thee. Don't you remember that? I mean, a couple of times they were going to stone you when you said you were before Abraham. They were going to stone you when you, when you claimed to be the son of God. This Jerusalem is no place to be. We, we must not go. Goest thou thither again? You're like courting disaster here. But Jesus answered, are there not twelve hours in the day? If any man walk in the day, he stumbleth not, because he seeth the light of this world. But if a man walk in the night, he stumbleth, because there is no light in him. Similar to what he talked about with the woman taken in adultery, and he is the light of the world. Similar to him healing the man born blind so that he can finally see and recognize light standing before him. It's still daytime. The light of the world, yours truly, still shines. And until darkness descends, until this light is snuffed out by the wicked rulers there in Jerusalem, then I'm going to shine. I'll shine even in the darkness. I'll shine even in the lion's den. So let's go. Well, verse 11, 
These things saith he, and after that he saith unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth. I love that he calls him friend, and I love that he uses the plural pronoun, our friend. You guys love him too. Every time we go, I'm sure you love Martha for cooking for us. I'm sure you love Mary for just sitting and learning alongside us. I'm sure you love Lazarus as another fellow disciple. Well, our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may awake him out of sleep. Then said his disciples, Lord, if he sleep, he shall do well. I mean, that's all it is. He's going to wake up. It's going to be fine. Howbeit Jesus spake of his death, which, which we know. But they thought that he had spoken of taking of rest and sleep. Then said Jesus unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Okay, you get it? Uh, sleep, it's like death, metaphorical. Forget it. Never mind. Let's just go. Okay. He's dead. I've got to raise him. Sleep, wait. Okay. This is the same problematic literalism of Nicodemus, I got to be born again? Mom's not going to like that. Or the literalism of the woman at the, at the well. Water that quenches my thirst permanently? Give me some of that. Or the disciples, you have meat to eat that we know not of? Where, where'd you get takeout? <sighs> Those that have eyes to see, let them see. Please understand the symbolism of what I'm trying to convey. And the same is true of us when we study scripture, when we go to the temple, when we partake of the sacrament, when we get baptized. Spiritually speaking, we live in a world of symbols. We've got to have eyes to see. Well, here he's being clear. He's being plain. I'm going to raise him from his sleep, from his death. But I love that he calls it sleep. Not just to be kind of cryptic or, or symbolic, but sleep is temporary. And as far as Jesus is concerned, so is death. <laughs> At least the death that we shouldn't fear. Spiritual death, that, there's a permanence there that should strike fear into all of us, as he said earlier today. But physical death? Oh, no. It's just sleep. And whether you're sleeping for four days, as Lazarus will, or sleeping for four centuries, you'll wake up. It's what I've come to do. Jesus has come to declare liberty to the captives. He's come to wake up the sleeping. He's about to do just that. And in verse 15, he says to his apostles, And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, to the intent ye may believe. Nevertheless, let us go unto him. Now, in a way, that's another example of divine restraint. Earlier, it was, I love Mary and Martha and Lazarus enough to make them go through something hard. And here, it's for your sakes, you apostles, that I'm glad we're not there to help. Wait, wait, what? You're, it's for our sake that you're going to allow hard things to happen? Oh, no, let's rush down there. If I would have known that this was death instead of just sleep, then we, we would have been hightailing it down to Jerusalem and get there as quickly as possible to be able to save Lazarus in time. That's a weird show of love. And strange that you're glad for our sake. We have to rethink what we think about God when it comes to adversity and tribulation and trial. 
we have to realize that sometimes, sometimes hard things happen because God loves us. And sometimes he lets hard things happen for our sake. This is the spotter that lets us struggle before he lifts the bar. Divine restraint is a fascinating thing. My father-in-law, who I've told you about as Job 2.0, talks about divine restraint with more conviction than anyone I know. Because God has not bailed him out of his trials. He instead let him suffer for his sake and was glad in an ironic kind of way that someone he loved and believed in would have the chance to grow spiritually as a result. This is a tough one. These are hard sayings. I hope we can hear them. Then hear this, verse 16. Then said Thomas, which is called Didymus. And yeah, it's that Thomas, the only Thomas we know, the doubting one. He said unto his fellow disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. The JST clarifies, for they feared lest the Jews should take Jesus and put him to death. For as yet they did not understand the power of God. They still don't get it. They still don't understand that Jesus' death was part of the plan. That there's no standing in the way. That you're not going to be able to save him. I mean, Peter still doesn't get it all the way up to cutting off the high priest's servant's ear, right? But here's Doubting Thomas. That doesn't sound so doubtful. Here, he is, he's daring Thomas, not doubting Thomas. He's the one trying to rally the troops and say, hey, if Jesus is going to go down, then we're going down with him. If, he's, is gonna, if they're going to stone him, then bring on the rocks. I'm willing to be a human shield here as long as I can. I, I worry sometimes that we reduce people to their worst moment and we dub them doubting Thomas or whatever it is that we struggle with. Instead of recognizing their moments that leave us awestruck of someone's courage and conviction. And so daring Thomas here, keep that in mind when we see a lesser moment later on. Verse 17, then the journey begins. Then when Jesus came, JST, to Bethany, to Martha's house. So another interrupting revelation to clarify. It's Martha's house. She's awesome. She, there's a reason she worked so hard. She's feeling that, pre- that pressure. Okay. So yes, it's Martha's house. He found that he had lain in the grave four days already. And according to Jewish tradition, the spirit might linger a little longer. It might hover near the body. Uh, the difference with Jairus' daughter is she had just died. And Jesus, it's almost kind of a, a, momentary, a momentary sleep and then a quick resuscitation, but not in Lazarus's case. Now, if Jesus had hightailed it before and, and he still would have been dead, but only two days, well, is this just a repeat of the miracle of Jairus' daughter? Well, no, it, or the son of the widow of Nain, for example. Jesus has raised the dead before, but they were, they were just barely dead. To borrow from the princess bride, they were mostly dead, but not entirely, perhaps. Well, this one's obvious to everyone. He is fully, completely, permanently, hopelessly dead. Now, Bethany was nigh unto Jerusalem, about 15 furlongs off. That's a little under two miles. And many of the Jews came to Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. And good for them for doing so. To mourn with those that mourn, to comfort those that stand in need of comfort. 
It also suggests the type of person that Mary and Martha and Lazarus were, the type of people they were. Uh, it's not just that Jesus loved them, but everyone else seemed to love them too. But then verse 20, Jesus is getting close. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary sat still in the house. Now, earlier in Luke 10, we saw them distinguished by their approach. Both were serving when, when there was no other option, when, when they had time, I should say. And Jesus was on the way, but he's not here yet. And so Mary is as eager to serve as Martha is. As soon as Jesus comes, it's Mary that makes the immediate shift. I'm no longer going to be like Martha. I'm going to be fully Mary. And it's Martha that stays Martha, right? We, we read all that before. Here we see similar differences. It's amazing they're still being true to their, their personality. Because Martha's a doer, and Mary is more of a, a thinker or a feeler. There is you know, kind of activity on Martha's part and interiority on Mary's part. And they both are going through the same devastating ordeal. They just lost their brother four days ago. And how are they going to mourn? How are they going to cope? How are they going to process all of this? Now, in Martha's case, as soon as she hears Jesus is coming, what does she do? She does something. She get up, gets up and acts. I, 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 gotta, I'm, I'm, I want to be busy. I, I just want to get my mind off of this. And if I can just throw myself into some kind of labor and I'm going to go journey out and meet Jesus wherever he is, as soon as I hear he's on, on his way, I just, I got to do something. Whereas, doesn't that sound like Martha? And yet in Mary's case, what is she doing? She's sitting and she's still and she's feeling and thinking and mourning. Martha, turn outward and do something. Mary, turn inward and think. I pray that here again we do not compare the two. That Mary had one good part and Martha had a different good part. That they... And time is not so much of the essence here as it was when Jesus was coming earlier. How the funeral, I mean, it's, it's there, it's, it's past. I mean, what else is there to do? I hope we can recognize people's personalities in the way they serve and in the way they mourn, in the way they react to your circumstances. Some come and, and bring the, the casserole and others come and bring their best version of comfort. Uh, some preach and pray with you and others just let's get up and do something. There are, I, t I need Martha's in my life just as I need Mary's in my life as I said before. But sometimes too it's how do I deal with my own challenges and will I deal with them in a Martha way or a merry way. And I hope we're okay with both. I hope we're open to the Spirit's guidance on which sister we need to be in a given circumstance. Several years ago, my wife and I went through something brutally hard. And we're wired very differently. Uh, it's, we're a match made in heaven and opposites attract. In, we're, we're a match made in heaven in things that we, that we share. Uh, which is so much. The middle part of our Venn diagram, the overlapping part, is glorious. But the parts that we don't share, that we're different, that's usually opposites attracting in really good ways too. 
she's way more fun than I am. Uh, she's, there's, we joke sometimes, even the way we dress, that the monk and the gypsy somehow found each other. And I'm the boring monk, and she's the amazing gypsy. Uh, lots of, way more style than I have. Well, when it came to this trial, though, it was a period of mourning. And I'm not wired much for sorrow. I have a native cheery temperament like Joseph Smith. It's probably the only thing I have in common with the prophet. But I usually don't even recognize hard days when they slap me in the face. But that day they slapped. And I was grateful that we got through it. And I was ready to move on and be thankful and appreciative and just leave that trial in the past and barrel towards a more hopeful future. And yet my wife, who is the ultimate empath and feels things so, so deeply, uh, an emotionality akin to Mary, with all of the glorious <laughs> celestial feeling that goes with it, but also the deep sorrow of just kind of being frozen still and I can't get up and move. And me, I'm like, we got to move on. We got to get going. It's like, we, let's just, let's head out and meet Jesus and it's going to be okay. And, and it was interesting because there, it even caused some friction between us. And I remember at one point just feeling like I, my wife wasn't doing well, but I felt this certain almost anger toward me. And I knew everything she was going through and I felt for her and I didn't feel judged and I didn't judge back. But I, I just remember feeling sorry for her and wishing that she could not feel so sorry anymore. And at one point of clarity, I turned to her and I said, you know what I think part of our problem is? I think you are mad at yourself for not reacting to this circumstance the way I am. And I think you're mad at me for not reacting to this circumstance the way you are. And as she sat with that, she agreed. And it was interesting to be frustrated in both directions, outward and inward. Why aren't I as strong as Jared and just able to move forward? But at the same time, why isn't he as devastated as I am? Where's his heart? Where's his sensitivity? I, would, I hope that we are open to our differences in Mary's and Martha's and that we don't condemn each other or ourselves for being who we are as long as we're trying, striving to be the best us that we can be. I just got a sweet text from my angel mother who said, I listened to your recent episode and thanks for recognizing that I was, <laughs> I had some merry qualities, even when I was in the, the throes of a Martha type mother, period of mothering. And then I love what she said at the end of her text. She just said, it's interesting to be retired now and have so much more time to live into my merry side without so many Martha-like things to do. Again, what I love about it, we're all both. We're, we're proving contraries within us. 
And whether it's how we serve or how we worship or how we suffer, I pray that we make room within others and within ourselves for both sisters. There's contraries to be proven here. Now, keep reading. And in verse 21, Then said Martha unto Jesus, she rushed out and met him, right? i got to do something. Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. And can you sense the broken heart behind those past tense verbs? It's over. It's too late. It, why do you think I sent the 911 call? What took so long? I know how far Galilee is from Bethany, and I swear, I, I thought you'd make it. I thought if, if Lazarus could just hold on a little longer, surely Jesus is beelining it straight here. But if you had made it in time, he wouldn't have died. Again, all those past tense, but it's too late, it's over. You didn't make it in time. And what strikes me about that is there are two different types of medicine that are contained in the atonement of Jesus Christ. There is preventative medicine and there is restorative or curative medicine. You know the type, right? Preventative is the stuff you take before a sickness so you don't get the sick. Restorative or curative medicine is the type you take after the fact, like, ah, oh, it's too late, I got sick, but this will help me feel better. It'll get, it will restore me. Now, what's interesting is which, is it Jesus can do both. Jesus' grace, his atonement, can help us avoid sin as well as forgive us of sin that we've committed if we repent. But the irony is, when it came to Christ's healing power, okay, that element of his grace, what, which type of medicine did Martha have faith in? Well, it was preventative. And that was the only type that she knew to this point. It's, if you'd been here, you could have healed him. You could have prevented his premature death. But now it's too late, and preventative medicine can't bring him back from the dead. What's interesting in our case, I, I think we've reversed things. Mary didn't understand both, and she held to one. We don't understand both, and we hold to the other. And we only seem to have faith in Christ's restorative, curative power, and we underestimate his preventative power. What I mean by that is we sin. Guilty is charged. And yet, because of our faith in Christ, we know we can be forgiven. So we repent. We trust in his mercy and his grace. And that healing medicine flows into us. I just wonder, do we underestimate the power of Christ's preventative grace? That in the moment when we are tempted, if we were to turn to Jesus as desperately in the moment of temptation as we do in the moment of repentance, chances are we'd have less to repent of. If, this is what I, I think Alma was getting at in the Book of Mormon when he said, teach them to withstand every temptation of the adversary with their faith on the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, that's interesting. Don't just exercise faith that you can repent. Exercise faith that you can avoid needing to repent so much. Exercise faith that Christ can help you overcome the temptation when it presents itself. 
Oh, turn to Christ before the sin, not just after. Be the opposite of Martha in this situation. Okay? Now, I say that, but then again, I wonder if she mm, had faith in both types of medicine. Because in verse 22, she does say, but I know that even now, so we're not past tense verbs anymore. We're now fully present. Even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. Now, there's absolute faith in Christ's power. Absolute trust in his will. Even in the present. But mm, she doesn't have any, she doesn't ask anything specific. She doesn't put words in the, in the Savior's mouth. She doesn't ask. She just, I just wish you'd come in time to save him. I don't know what your will is now. I know that anything you want can happen. That, that much I do know. And even with just that, Jesus responds in verse 23, Thy brother shall rise again. Now Martha says unto him, I know that he shall rise again. In the resurrection at the last day, which again is a powerful testimony, but that's future tense. Either way, she's missing out on the present. It's interesting. I mean, even now, whatever you say will go. So she does have faith in the present. But when it comes to her brother, it's either past or it's future. It, right now, it's going to stink. Right now, I'm going to have to live without him. Uh, someday, I'll get him back. That's future hope. I loved my time with him, and I wish you had come long and, uh, early enough to be able to save him. That's past. But part of the great gift of mindfulness is being able to live in the present because that's all we got. And you're not haunted by past problems and you're not, well, you're not scared to death of, of future woes. It's, I'm just right here. And anything God wants to give me right here, I'm open to receive. But again, notice this, this wrestle with the verb tenses, okay? When she says, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection of the last day, future tense, Jesus brings it into the present. He said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. You don't have to wait that long, my friend. I can bring the future into the present, just like I can reverse the past and eliminate it to bring you into a glorious present. That's, I'm here. I am. That's the present tense verb. But it's also the present tense title. I am that I am. We've seen so many of them so far. In John especially. I am the living water. I'm the bread of life. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the light of the world. I'm the door of the sheep. I'm all of these things. Here, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Now, you talk about a testimony. But then he follows it with this. Oh, this question. One where he would look through the soul of this marvelous Martha. Believest thou this? Wow, there's a gut check. He has just said the impossible. Straight up, no way. Bring him back. You don't have to wait for the resurrection at the, in, at the last day. I'll, I'll, I'll fast forward. I'll move that up closer. I'll bring it, the future, into the present. Do you believe that I can? In fact, do you believe that I am? How would we respond? 
Lord, I believe. Ah, help down my unbelief. I, I don't know. Well, Martha is going to rise to the occasion. And in verse 27, she saith unto him, Yea, Lord, I believe. In fact, more than what you said, I'll add a few titles of my own. I believe that thou art the Christ. There's the Messiah. There's the anointed one. And then this phrase, the Son of God. That's what I know you to be. That's what I believe. The Christ and the Son of God, which should come into the world. That testimony makes her the female equivalent of Peter. Remember on Peter when he was at Caesarea Philippi? Whom do ye say that I am? And Peter's resounding testimony. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Here, Martha makes the same witness, the same testimony. Verse 28 and 29. And when she had so said, she went her way. Oh, just like those ten lepers had. The miracle hasn't happened yet, but the promise has come. And so I'll act on the promise as if it had already been fulfilled. She went her way and called Mary her sister secretly, saying, The master is come and calleth for thee. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came unto him. Notice Jesus is still where he was before. He's still staying put right out of, out of town, expecting Mary to come to him the way Martha had. Huh, interesting. First version, it was Martha, come sit with, me, with, with Mary. Be a little more Mary-like. This time, okay, Mary, time to get up and move and get yourself out of this situation. Come to me. Be a little more Martha-like this time. And so she comes quickly, as fast as she can. Verse 30, now Jesus was not yet come into town, but was in that place where Martha met him which extends the episode still further. Stays up in Galilee two extra days, stays here outside of town, however long it takes Mar uh, Mary to come and find him. I'm just going to sit and wait for you to come to me. That's where the real healing will occur. So come. The Jews then, which were with her in the house, and comforted her, when they saw Mary, that she rose up hastily and went out, they followed her, saying, She goeth unto the grave to weep there. That's how devastated she is. Everywhere she's going, tears are flowing. And they're just assuming she's probably wanting to get even closer to this brother that she misses so desperately. Must be headed to the grave. But she wasn't. She was heading to the conqueror of the grave. Then when Mary was come where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying unto him, and see if this language sounds familiar, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. Mary was more like Martha than either one probably realized. With similar feelings and similar faith, similar worries, similar hopes, just approaching things a little differently. But she said the exact same thing as her sister had. And how does Jesus respond? Verse 33. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews also weeping, which came with her. He groaned in the spirit and was troubled. Oh, I wish I knew all that was going on in his heart. But this much I do know. He said, Where have ye laid him? They said unto him, Lord, come and see. And then the shortest verse of all scripture. 
Jesus wept. And the Jews said, Behold how he loved him. It's beautiful that they knew of Jesus' love as manifest in his tears. But did they know everything that was behind those tears? Did they know his perfect empathy? That his perfect faith was put on hold so that he could be perfectly human before showing he was perfectly divine? That he would weep in order to sanctify tears. To fully condescend. To come down with calm passion and feel with others and feel like others and weep right alongside them. The same being that someday will wipe away every tear from every eye allowed a few tears to fall from his own. Maybe that's why this needs to be the shortest verse. It doesn't take much more than that to give us a glimpse into the goodness of God and the heart of his only begotten Son. I'm amazed by this. I need to be more like this because I'm the type that Martha-like rushes onto the rescue. Well, let's just fix it. And there's my daughters and my wife have been the best at convincing me that's not always the best approach. <laughs> that dad, don't solve the problem. Just let me feel it for a time. In fact, it'd be nice if you could feel it alongside me. What well, Jesus does. He doesn't quickly reassure them. He doesn't prematurely reassure them. Again, if all of this has been for their sake, holding himself back, waiting longer, glad that he was not there, love them enough to let them suffer, then he joined them in that suffering. Instead of quickly, prematurely reassuring, it's going to be okay. Even when Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, it's still not obvious what he's about to do. So before he does anything, he weeps with them. Before he pulls them out of the pit, he descends to join them in it. That's mourning with those that mourn. Before <laughs> speeding ahead onto comforting those that stand in need of comfort. Now, if we need to let patience have her perfect work, then I think we need to let sorrow perform her perfect work too. Jesus does. Then, verse 37, some of them said, could not this man which opened the eyes of the blind have caused that even this man should not have died? And there we have a third witness of Christ's preventative power. But everyone underestimating his restorative power. I can reverse things, not just prevent things. Now verse 38, Jesus therefore again, groaning in himself, cometh to the grave. It was a cave and a stone lay upon it. Oh, is, is the foreshadowing of Jesus' own burial place striking us? Is it striking him? Well, either way, Jesus said, Take ye away the stone. Roll that away. And Martha, the sister of him that was dead, saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he hath been dead four days. And if there were ever a reality that really stinks, it's the permanence of death. 
it's saying goodbye to someone and never being able to see them again. It's, that stinks. And the sweet savor of Christ's own sacrifice, the sweet smell of reuniting and resurrecting, no one has ever experienced yet. Jesus will be the first fruits of them that slept in terms of a permanent resurrection. But to let this stinking corpse become once again the sweet smell of love and joy and reunion, wow, this in some ways is even better than the prodigal son. Or at least it's a physical manifestation of it. If the prodigal was brought back to life spiritually, Lazarus is about to be brought back to life physically. But Martha can't see that coming, and she's worried about the smell. <laughs> well, Jesus saith unto her, Said I not unto thee that if thou wouldst believe, thou shouldst see the glory of God? Hold on to your faith, my friend, no matter what's staring you in the face, or in the nose, for that matter. <laughs> Just believe. Verse 41, Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. And again, he says that even before anything has happened. He just knows it will. And I knew that thou hearest me always, but because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. Interesting that he almost wants his, well, he wants the people to overhear his faith. That's why he's making it audible. He's praying to the Father speaking to him, thanking God in hopes that his hearers, these eavesdroppers on a private conversation that he didn't want to keep private, would start exercising faith in God themselves, would start expressing greater gratitude to him, would see his glory in what's about to take place. Verse 43, And when he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice. Again, he wants people to hear. Okay. Absolute faith is going to happen. So he's not shy about making the promise. He's not like whispering some kind of priesthood blessing or kind of oh, watering down the language. I, I, I fear we do that sometimes, brethren, when we give priesthood blessings. I've been guilty of that. Uh, not really knowing what God's will is or fe fearing I don't have sufficient faith to make a loud pronouncement of healing or to publicly proclaim a promise that, uh, do I have enough faith in its fulfillment? Well, the Lord did, and so this is loud. And loudly he says, Lazarus, come forth. Loud enough that if it doesn't work, everyone's going to know. This is like the man lowered down through the roof. What's easier to say? Forgive sins? No one's going to be able to tell if that didn't work. But take up thy bed? Everyone will know if I lack that, if I lack that power. Well, same with this. Everyone will know I'm a charlatan. If I call on the dead to rise and they stay sleeping, well, no fear of that here. He that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound about with a napkin. So Jesus saith unto them, Loose him and let him go. Which is exactly what Jesus will someday say to all the dead as he preaches deliverance to the captives. Notice the word bound came up twice. And loose came up, along with let, them, let him go. 
when he conquers death for us all and breaks the chains of death and of hell, oh, what a glorious resurrection that will be for the repentant. Also, notice that Jesus, notice what Jesus did versus what Jesus did not do. He asked them, where, where have you laid him? Uh, where's the grave, in other words? Can you show me the way? Uh, surely the omniscient Jesus Christ would have known. Uh, roll the stone away so that Lazarus could come out. Well, surely if he can command the dead, he can command a stone to roll. And if he can bring somebody out of the grave, then certainly he can bring them out of the grave clothes. But instead, will you show me, the, will you take me to the grave? Will you move the stone? Will you remove the burial clothes? You see, some things only I can do. I'll do them. But some things you can do, and I expect you to do those things. Then in verse 45, many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did, believed on him. <laughs> yeah, you think? Sadly, though, the next verse is the opposite group. If many believe, well, some don't. Some of them went their ways to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done. You just saw a miracle, and that's all you can do is tattletale? You'll report him to the authorities? You disturb the peace, the peace of the dead, by bringing him back to life. Oh, I guess that's probably not disturbing, is it? Well, it's disturbing us. It's disturbing the status quo. Really? You're going to go with opposition instead of awe? You're going to go with tattling instead of testimony? Okay. Verse 47, Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council, and said, What do we? For this man doeth many miracles. If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him. And if that weren't bad enough, the Romans shall come and take away both our place and nation. Now that second one's legit. Uh, there, there is a fear of Roman rule, and if there's some kind of uprising and everyone wants to follow this Jesus and proclaim him Messiah, remember they were at the verge of Making, crowning him king just after he multiplied loaves and fishes. Now he can bring the dead back? Well, sign me up. Enlist me in the army. I'll go fight Rome. And I'm not even afraid of death because my king can raise me. How's that for no casualties, Roman legion? Hello. But it's one thing to fear Roman rule. It's another thing to be afraid of losing your place. They'll take away both our place and nation. We're semi-sovereign. I mean, at least we can do our own kinds of things in the Temple Mount and live our religion, or at least the traditions of our fathers. I don't want to lose my place. I, I'm the guardian of the law, or I'm among the chief priests, the rulers of the people. And if they start following this Jesus because of stories like this beginning to spread, we thought he was popular before. Well, now to see somebody that was raised after four days, mm, what, what, what's their nose going to tell them? What are their eyes going to tell them? It's, you smell dead, but you sure look alive, Lazarus. Looking good. The world's going to know. And the world's going to go after this Jesus. Well, verse 49 we meet someone that we're going to see a little more of later on. 
one of them named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, so one of the ultimate leaders among the people, he said unto them, ye know nothing at all, nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and that the whole nation perish not. And this spake he not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for the nation, and not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. Now, most of that are John's words, not Caiaphas's words. John is seeing something in Caiaphas like, whoa. He said more than he knew. What did Caiaphas actually know? It probably sounds like, hey, we'll just get rid of this guy. It's better that he die and then the, our place and our nation can survive. Okay? And so don't worry about it. We'll take care of it somehow. Don't, 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 get, don't be alarmed. But when John hears that, it's like, whoa. Yeah, Jesus would die. Not to preserve some kind of political state for the, for the Jews but to save our nation, and not just our nation, all nations, to gather together in one, all the children of God, anyone scattered. No, wait, I, I just, I love that the light bulb comes on for John, and it's like, Caiaphas, you have no idea what you just said. Even when he says, well, he was the high priest that year. Which means he even thinks, well, let's separate person from position. The person was, yeah, the yikes, but the position He's still the high priest. And maybe even the unworthy can speak an inspired word or two when God pushes through that person's unworthiness. I mean, we Book of Mormon lovers know the phrase that the, the Lord tells Nephi when he's not wanting to kill Laban to get the brass plates. And he's told, better that one man should perish than a nation should dwindle and perish in unbelief. Well, in a way... This is, this is Caiaphas' version of the same, same sentiment. We'll get rid of Jesus and save ourselves. From the Father's standpoint, that is why I sent him. But he's not going to save you in the way you think. Far greater salvation than you realize. Now, as we approach the end of this chapter, notice verse 53 and 54. Then from that day forth, they took counsel together for to put him to death. So this is another turning point. In the synoptic tradition, it's the transfiguration that really marks that time of, hey, hey we're going to Jerusalem and there's no looking back. In John's gospel, it's the raising of Lazarus, which in a way is a transfiguration of sorts. Uh, do you, in the, on the Mount of Transfiguration, do you see who Jesus is? Here at Lazarus' tomb, do you see who Jesus is? Oh, and, and no mere mortal, someone being raised above the level of mere mortality. Now, that turning point, it's, his end is now approaching. They take counsel to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, walked no more openly among the Jews. No wonder he's going to have to kind of be in hiding until the actual week of his death arrives. The end is near, but not quite there yet. So what does he do? He went thence into a country near to the wilderness, into a city called Ephraim, and there continued with his disciples. Now he's going to stay there until there's another real reason for him to go to Jerusalem. And it's going to be the last time he's, he's there. So in verse 55 and 56, the Jews' Passover was nigh at hand. 
and many went out of the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then sought they for Jesus, and spake among themselves as they stood in the temple, What think ye, that he will not come to the feast? I mean, surely he's going to come. He's a practicing Jew. He comes to all of them, right? He comes, came to the Feast of Tabernacles. He came to the Feast of Dedication. That's not even a, a pilgrimage feast. He, he's, he's come, he comes to Jerusalem for these kinds of things. Surely he's got to be here. I do find it interesting that they're coming to purify themselves, and they're standing in the temple, and they're wondering, wondering about Jesus. I think there's a connection there. If you're looking for purity, and if you're seeking the house of God, actually you'll find all of that in Jesus. He is purity personified. He is the temple of God's Spirit. Come unto Him, not just at Passover time, but at all times. But at this Passover, Christ is going to come to you. He's going to come to Jerusalem. Verse 57, Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a commandment that if any man knew where he were, he should show it, that they might take him. Interesting ending. Not only for this chapter. Let's get more tattletales. Let's get more eyes on the street. Watch for him. See where he, any movement. Bring us word. Because from this point on, we are dead set on his death. So come bring us word. In some ways we're getting the bookend, the other bookend of what we saw at the beginning in Matthew chapter 2 of King Herod. Oh, keep an eye out for him. When you, 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 uh, you wise men, when you find this king of the Jews, bring me word again. They're wanting word as well. Show it so we can take him. So the chapter ends, but so this week's lesson ends. And to bring it all full circle... I wonder about that last passage. Do we know where Jesus is? And when we find him, do we tell people about it? They were doing it for the wrong reasons. Will we do it for the right reason? Or will we be like the villains that we've met this week? Will we be foolish, whether rich or poor? Will we be unjust in our stewardships? Will we be ungrateful in our blessings? Will we be covetous of things that aren't worth coveting? Or will we come unto Christ? Will we see him as our elder brother and come running no matter how prodigal we've been? Will we trust the good shepherd when he tries to pick us up and carry us home on his shoulders? Or more like him in his bosom? Will we come unto him when we're suffering and struggling? Will we come unto him before we're sinning as well as after? Do we trust that Jesus is what he says he is? The resurrection and the life. Because if he's both, then we don't just have to wait to a coming day for a full-fledged resurrection. Right now, he can erase our past and bring us into a present that is so much more glorious than anything we'd hoped for ourselves. He can take what promises to be a glorious present and bring it rushing into our, or glorious future, excuse me, and bring it rushing into our present. He's more than the resurrection. He's the life.
And if he is, and I testify that he is, then may we embrace that life. May we live that life. May we find real life in him.